Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan And welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news pe- cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves. We are still all doing the remote thing because it is Corona season. And I'm Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink. And I'm delighted to be here, wherever here is, undisclosed location, somewhere in Virginia, where I have been thinking about taking on a few additional wives Mm -hmm. and perhaps founding a religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, David Koresh made some mistakes, obviously. (laughs) I mean, but I think there are things that you can learn. Yeah. And things are bad enough that I think Mm -hmm. I really could make a go of establishing a new religion, Mm -hmm. branding myself the Messiah. You you know, you should always trust a religion when the guy has like a flying V guitar and is like uh, in like a metal cover band, like David Koresh was. Remember that about him? Thus, thus saith Michael Moynihan who is definitely going to be granted access to my cult. Cool. But not to my women. But that's why <laughs> I'm joining. I mean, you can't <laughs> yeah, regulate no. that. Celibacy for everyone else. Actually, yes, I can, because I am the new messiah. <laughs> that's so, kind of the whole deal. Just that's like how that works. Deal. The variation from the religion of your birth is that there's going to be like three apocalypses yeah. or three <laughs> books of revelation it's just less homophobic just non-stop <laughs> revelation in your face is that what's happening well well matt welch of reason magazine Thank you. um Thank you. i i should mention because this is a fun fact about the branch davidians they're actually an offshoot of an organization called the shepherd's rod which is an offshoot of the, the Seventh shepherd's Day Adventist rod Church. shepherd's rod yes so it's the Seventh-day Adventists, Branch Davidians, and – well, actually, Seventh-day Adventists, Shepherd's Rod, and then Branch Davidians. Wow. No, but so. Shepherd's Rod. Can we, awesome. Let's, let's linger on the rod for a second. Do, have you, yeah. do, you, do, you, do you have that old, <laughs> that old uh, record from Shepherd's Rod, their first one? So good. Oh, yeah, a little yeah. bit punk rock. They're a little bit like still metal on Sub crossover. Pop, right? Yeah, they're on Sub They hadn't been signed by Warner. Yeah. Shepherd's Rod! <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know anything about the, uh, the doctrinal <laughs> truths of the shepherd's rod, um, but it doesn't matter well, because I'm going be to start assumed. my own my yeah. own tradition. Yeah, they can be yeah. they can be assumed. Uh, by the way, you I, can't you can't just like chapstick your face with like weird shit. Now we're actually videotaping this. Yeah, we are. Well, yeah, we, we are. I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna. This is a test run, isn't it? Is it? Is it? We are using Zoom for the first time. Yeah. Um, today so this is this is interesting zoom whose stock has gone through the roof um the stock market which is oddly like i've recovered most of my losses i'm surprised to say uh at this stage i'm still waiting for it to crater again i'm sustaining losses yeah <laughs> this week constantly well not <laughs> stock wise but just personally job wise oh geez well not well, to i mean it's 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 out in the it's out in the ether there's been reporting on it but you know Mm-hmm. I took. We all took pay cuts this week, so so. Um, yeah, not we all actually. No, we all meaning the people that I work with. Um, <laughs> yeah, all, yes. all took pay cuts, and um, you know, it's all the blue check marks on Twitter who were like, you know what? Um, to say that we should open things up again is genocidal. You're a genocidaire if you agree with that. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait till they cut their pay by like eight percent, like by by four percent. They're gonna be like, you know what? This has gone on long enough mm. donald trump is is uh, orchestrating this but uh. <laughs> and shout out to our many listeners uh who work in industries that just got like 
totally like, throat cut. Yes, and that's it. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you work in a restaurant? Were you mm-hmm. a bartender? Did you do this? Uh, and don't uh, have jobs now, or at least, or don't have work now. Yeah, we um, had a bunch of emails sucks. like that. Super sucks. And it yeah, was really, yeah. it was really good to have people actually emailing us in, in in times like this. And they were often very sweet emails, very very smart emails, and um, you know, and talking about what they're doing now, um, how they're sort of spending their time. And that's what a lot of people's emails are. So, Camille, just for the record, you don't have to say at the beginning of the podcast we're still doing this remotely because the entire world is doing it remotely. It's not yeah. like it's not just us. It's literally don't tell me what to say. Like white Croatia, man. it's still they're doing some lock-in down there. <laughs> Camille feels remote because like he still like sends us a picture every two and a half days from his every two and a half days trip to Costco yeah. or like gun face or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. place gun he balls. goes to. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, one of the things that I've discovered is you have to figure out the best places to go to get your supplies. And I've discovered that, and I probably shouldn't disclose this, but I yep. will pro tip. Mm-hmm. Um, the flow of traffic at target is actually quite a bit better than the local grocery store and really? substantially better than the local Walmart. So when I realized we were low on paper towels today, I decided at 7.30 when I was venturing out um, that I would go directly to Target. And I managed to get two of the large bundles, although they limit it one per customer. Mm-hmm. And I picked it up and I was like, hey, you know, I need two of these. And they're like, no, sir, it's one per customer. So I'll take my chances. And I got to the register and I was like, ring that shit up. Ring up both of them. Don't play games with me. There, but these are paper towels? It. Yeah, that's all that's that's all that was required. And they said you could only buy w- one. Yeah, the large bundles it was one per customer. But you were warned. Yeah. And did you go black scent? Did you code switch? No, no, I lied. I, I said that everyone <laughs> in the house was like sheltering in place and self-isolating. <laughs> and oh my God, what can I do? two ways wow. Camille can deal with that. And one is like, shut your mouth. And the other one is like, well, I, everybody in the house is uh, a little sick at the moment. And I'd like, a, you know, I just can't leave. We're sheltering in place. <laughs> sheltering in place. It's uh I did feel a little bad because the guy at the register was like, uh, I hope your family feels better. It's like, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, thanks. I mean, it's only it's only kind of a lie. I was shopping for multiple households. Do you know where you don't have to like lie? Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to look someone in the eye and lie about your own personal experience. Tell me. It's in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The epicenter of the virus, mm-hmm. of the Rona. You might have forgotten that yeah. from where you are. But... I had forgotten. <laughs> and it's a place also where you can walk like 30 seconds yeah. from where I'm sitting, probably 60 seconds from one hand sitting, mm-hmm. no aspersions, mm-hmm. oh, little aspersions. Well, I have 30 seconds, but that bodega is a little rough. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's dodgy. You can kind of get anything that you need. And you don't have to lie. You can be actually honest with yourself and with the people around you. And are they fully stocked? Everything except thermometers. Wow. Where I am, if you ask in a certain way, everything's fully stocked. They're like, something's out. Like, hey, do you have a thermometer? It's like, should I have a thermometer? Okay, man. Just give me, give me 20 seconds, okay? And comes back with a thermometer. And I'm like, how much? Like, 25, okay? And I'm like, it's, but it says three on the box. Like, yeah, it's uh, tough times. And I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out the accent. It, wait, are they really manipulating the prices at this point? Are they responding to demand? Yeah, there's a, I mean, that's that's happening all over the place. Yeah. And I was in a bodega. I might have said this on the Patreon. I don't think I did. I was in a bodega up on uh, not too far from where I live. And it was pretty crowded, actually. And a guy in who was like, of course, because everyone thinks both. It's like an the, like the entire city is an airport now. 
So like everybody's in their like pajamas, which you shouldn't have your pajamas on in a fucking airport anyway. That's like, I'm so tired of this thing. Like, mm-hmm. why are you wearing like Uggs and like, you know, pajama pants? <laughs> and this guy in his like pajama bottoms yelling at the Yemeni guy behind the counter for price gouging. Cause he's like, um, you know, it's a pump bottle of the sanitizer. But the, I mean, the only reason I thought the price was too high because it was like not clearly a real brand, <laughs> you know, it was, it was yeah. like literally like Al Qaeda brand. Just like sanitizer. some scum off of the Gowanus like, Canal. Like literally, <laughs> it had, it had characters on it of an alphabet I'd never seen before. I was like, that's not even real. I was like, that's not Cyrillic. It's like flames coming out of it. And the guy was like, you can't sell it. And he's like the, the Yemeni guy, by the way, very good point yells back he's like you don't know how much i bought it for which is totally true he's like i bought it for a lot so i'm selling to you for he said he said like, i'm only making only making a couple of bucks on this and there was a huge fight about the cost of the hand sanitizer so everyone's gone mad everyone's gone mad and by the way it's like yeah it's not bad at all right so people's lives are going to be tough because of because of you know enormous financial d- difficulties that are forthcoming etc but like i was reading i mentioned this a few weeks ago the Victor Klemperer um, diaries and the, the years of 1944-1945 when he's living as a as a Jew in Dresden in just like every day, like, can we get a nub of sausage? And this bomb is falling and there's no water and every day is a new indignity. And like, and this guy's like, you know, the hand sanitizer is $3 more than it normally is. I'm going to report <laughs> you to the city. I'm like, yeah, it's not bad. Life is terrible, but it could be a thousand times worse, so... Yeah, I asked my daughter today at the dinner table, like, what is the thing that you wish that you could do um, that we haven't been able to do uh, recently? And the five-year-old obviously uh, lied and and said that, oh, I wish I could watch a – no, she didn't lie, actually. She said that she wished she could go to the movie theater and see a movie in the movie theater. Okay, we can't do that. Um, Just presented a little bit more uh, dodgily than that. And – uh, the eleven-year-old is just more like seeing people on the street and and, and communicating with people, yeah. which is which is true and, and it's big. But at the same time, you know, we can sit out on our stoop and at least you know talk to people or yell at people as they walk by. It sucks in many ways. Yeah. It's dispiriting. And I realize I don't know what it's like with with you guys, especially I mean Camille, who's already checked out, and again just sort of shooting uh, the poor's. As they crawl up uh, the embankment, the pole pot of the poor. But like, there's a difference if you if you notice, like, uh, Moynihan, your family's on the on the east coast, uh, and uh, and uh, mine is on the west coast, and they're under many lockdown orders too. Yeah. And we have this like group uh, text string that buzzes a lot uh, during the day, um, and you realize that even a week difference in these different things are. Um, uh, they are wondering about a world that they can't imagine because they're not in New York. And I'm not claiming special status for New York, just that like we're, we are where Italy was, you know, with lots of variations. We've kind of stopped using that measurement though, haven't we? Because yeah. at the beginning of this, it was all like, we were six and a half days behind Italy. And now we've just been like, Italy is a disaster. I mean, we, disaster, we might be where France is, but the point being within the context of America, it's really hard to imagine being where New York has learned to be comfortable with, even in places that are un- under very specific lockdown orders, you know, or who have some uh, uh, elements of 
of uh, of the disease like coming in really strongly and hotly. It's just strange. This thing moves so fast that we forget how dislocating it is. And and uh, a thing that breaks my heart, uh, just thinking about um, what we're going through in New York, and it's going to be a body pileup situation in, in New York for the next like three weeks. Probably it's going to be a bad time to be sick. And a lot of the people who die of coronavirus are sick themselves. And maybe they, they would have died otherwise, or it's a complicating uh, uh, disease. Um, but the point is you just can't get medical care. That's, that's one of the insidious factors. of The disease is that you look around and like, okay, Coco, don't, you know, skin your knee going downhill on the scooter. We don't have access to the same care. Yeah. Everyone's going to be going through this. That's listening to this. If you haven't and you're kind of like uh, befuddled by it, it's not going to be New York City because nothing is New York City, um, but it's going to probably go everywhere, at least to some degree. There's going to be, I think, some strain on the capacity everywhere uh, that you go. So when we talk about this, it's it's uh, part of it is uh, as a way of saying like it, it's a weird thing to wrap your minds around when, when, when it gets there. And when we talk about, which we probably will pretty soon, because Camille's probably locking and loading his pistol off camera, or at least below where we can see his gigantic <laughs> microphone. It's such a big microphone. That's a euphemism. By the way, you also noticed that he just put his hands up. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, hands <laughs> yeah. up, don't shoot. That's what he just did. I'm not armed at the moment. Okay. Yeah. The majority of the country, six weeks from now, probably, is going to be in a really dark psychological place that Moynihan arguably was born with, but that certainly that we've been dealing with here in, in New York City for a while. And so when we talk about this, I was I was Howard Deal out of the womb <laughs> or Howard Jarvis. You know, I, I watch I, I told you I mentioned this in the last Patreon and, and I'll stop talking in a second here. Um, I'd forgotten this thing about the movie Airplane is that oh, yeah. Howard Jarvis. The anti-tax Proposition 13 co-writer uh, in 1977 and 1978, he is the cab ride that Ted Stryker abandons on the curbside. It's Howard Jarvitz. Like, there's no reason. Is that right? That's Howard Jarvitz. Because I'm from California. I'm like, what oh, the fuck wow. is Howard Jarvitz doing here? It's Howard Jarvitz. It's a, like a totally random and fun thing. Uh, uh, well, other random thing, when I was in Times Square and nobody else was, um, I did see billboards for a show that I think is on Hulu or, or something. Um, speaking of 70s political figures that are making a kind of uh, comeback, is that uh, uh, who's that uh, British woman? She's playing Phyllis Schlafly. There's a, a new Helen show Mirren, I hope. That ha- no, not a Helen Mirren. The ginger one. <laughs> Helen Mirren. But that's the worst thing I've ever heard. It's not the, the ginger like, one. Literally not the worst thing you ever heard. Who's the... But it makes no sense. That's... A- that's like literally saying, you know, Tootie from the Facts of Life. Is that what you're talking about? Um, also a good point. I don't. <laughs> um, oh, by the way, I'm worried about going to the hospital uh, too or going to the doctor for anything else. And and I'm going to admit that I got, I had the, the most ridiculous, bougie Brooklyn injury oh, yesterday. God. I stabbed myself in the hand um, while cutting an avocado. <laughs> <laughs> you literally piece of garbage you see that i'm showing you that see that's where the that's where the Hold on. that's where the knife entered yeah show, so wait, right into my show that again oh, that's lame yeah it's lame dude the point of the fucking story is that i didn't have to go to the hospital what are you expecting like a gaping wound that i just <laughs> you know gotten gallipoli or something I'm ta- come on i'm talking about location i'm not talking about severity 
Well, how do you fucking stab that part of your finger when cutting an avocado? Because you know, you, unless you're dumber no, 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 with an avocado cu- than I'm dumber with oh the computer. Oh my god, you're the you're the dumbest on the computer. That's not under dispute. Um, <laughs> it's really not under dispute. I, no, I, the thing was is I was not cutting the avocado itself. I was taking the pit. What do you call it? Pit. Is it the pit? Seed. Pit. It, British people call it a pip. You know? Do you know that? Hmm. The pip. Just so you know, <laughs> this is why people listen. As trying to get it out, so jab- I jabbed it, and the thing slid, and the thing slid through the avocado into my hand. Huh. And then I had an avocado toast that had blood all over it. it, was it but great. you ate it. Yeah, it was a guar breakfast with the food rationing. I guess you have to eat it. Now, question for both of you because uh, we've all seen the images. Those of us who aren't in New York, that hellhole, the dystopian fallen city that once great city which will be great again once i return you're not allowed back we'll see about that you can fuck straight off i'm gonna send you to rhode Um, island (laughs) but the javits center the javits center is your new Mm state-of-the-art triage facility Mm -hmm. there's like 1200 hospital beds and hasn't the usns comfort pulled up at the dock so you could go to either one of those fabulous state-of-the-art medical facilities and receive well the naval the naval vessel is of course avocado yes the naval vessel is of course not for coronavirus people it's for for the for the other people for avocado injuries it's avocado related injuries that's how it should be that's more fun what like you got you cut yourself doing an avocado get in a fucking boat yeah (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I have motion sickness. I would have to go to the Javits, the Javits Center. Javits. There's no such alternative uh, where I am in Virginia. Do you know you're not feeling that book rocking very much, by the way, Camille? Yeah, I don't know about that. It's not. It's, I don't it's know not, about that. You're not going to. I will tell you, I've never, I've never taken a cruise for fear that I would hurl everywhere because of my horrid motion sickness. Really? I scuba dive. I'm an advanced open water scuba diver. Oh, Does enriched oxygen dives and stuff. And every single trip out on the boat. I heard. How much do you bench? <laughs> Not as much as I used to. Um, but I've done some really deep dives. I'm, I'm so, but very, wait, so very if you're on like a sailboat, right? I hurl. Really? I hurl. You do? If you're on a sailboat. Yeah, I think about sailboats and I hurl. I think I take like 52 Dramamine and I hurl. Really? God yeah. damn, morning. I know. That was like I, after my avocado cutting story in this time when things are really rough. I'm like, when you're on a sailboat, what happens? So when you're <laughs> swimming in William F. Buckley's pool... <laughs> And he asks you to like yeah. strip down all the way. Uh, uh, Camille. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure he liked Camille types to strip down all the way. Did he? <laughs> um, so are we doing a thing where we talk about the Corones? We kind of have been. Yeah, we're, we're into it. So we might as well stay there. And, and look, there's actually a lot of interesting parallel stories this week. So we don't have to only look at the wreckage um, and the bodies that are piling up, as Matt describes it. Um, there, there will be time enough for counting the dead and the injured. Was um, that an homage right. to the recently passed Kenny Rogers? Wow. <laughs> There's a time enough for counting when you're dead. Like Kenny Rogers. It wasn't Rogers. a deliberate homage. Okay. Right. All right. I thought it was a Kenny, Kenny Rogers. Um, but there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. There is an intersection with civil liberties. There are some overlooked foreign policy things yeah. that are going on. Uh, Victor Orban is in the news this week. Do you remember there's an election? Have you heard about Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden anytime recently? Bernie still has not dropped out of the race. No. Would you? No, stay, yeah. I'd stay yeah. the course. Like, he's probably in his house in Burlington where he's like set up the Oval Office and he's like thinks he's the president and he's just playing it out with Jane yeah. all day because no one's paying attention yeah. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's the election, but I really don't know if there's anything to talk about. 
I've heard and seen almost no, no election news. I know Joe Biden has not only been making statements on the interwebs, he's hosted a few virtual drinks with Joe Biden. I can only imagine what a disaster those things are, but I have not he seen any even of them. drink. The election has faded That's into the background. That's what a disaster background. it is. He's a fucking teetotaler. He's a quitter. Is he really? He's a quitter, yeah. <laughs> Just like Adolf Hitler. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so there's, there's plenty of other stuff for us to talk about. I am very, very interested in talking about the rash of states here in the United States that have jumped on the bandwagon of restricting mm-hmm. all kinds of activity. There is uh, curfews uh, in, I guess, uh, South Florida is essentially shut down until mid-May, it looks like. The federal guidelines now have stretched the social distancing policies out into April 30th. Uh, at this point, and again, we're re- we're recording this. Well, I don't know if it's again, but we're recording this on March 31st. Um, these are pretty extraordinary steps. There was a moment there where it looked like Donald Trump might be easing up off the gas, where he talked about possibly because the the savior got up on Easter, the U.S. economy should also get up on Easter, and we should maybe just stop all of this madness by then. Um, But it looks like he's pushed it through the end of the month. Um, And there was actually a a pretty good piece that I saw today um, about some of the behind the scenes uh, machinations that actually led to that outcome. Um, But I wonder what you guys are seeing from your vantage points uh, occasionally going out into the world, but largely sequestered in your homes. I sent you guys a tweet um, today from somebody who I know. Um, that was calling for draconian measures and saying that like, you know, what happens, mm-hmm. by the way, is like Donald Trump, apparently, I think it was in the piece that you're probably referencing, Camille, saw f- images. And when he saw images, that's, w- wasn't that it, right? He saw some pictures and, and that was the same thing yeah. with Afghanistan. Yeah. It's always like he's like, you show him a picture book and the guy's policy changes. <laughs> it's easy to manipulate. Totally. And that, but that works in the other direction too, is that you see, you know, a bunch of people crowding around on the West Side Highway looking at the, uh, you know, USS Comfort or whatever the hell it's called, uh, coming in and everyone's taking pictures of it. And they're like, everyone's outraged, freaking out. Like, where's the distancing? What is like, we, you know, this is not working, et cetera. And you can't really tell from the angle of the photos. It's just two photos, by the way. There's two photos. One person posted them. They got picked up by the Daily Mail and now they're everywhere. I don't know what this is like. And you can't tell how far people are apart. And you also, yeah. when you see three people together, just assume they're a family. It's probably a pretty safe presumption right now. And I would bet dollars to donuts if you're talking on like a kind of upper, close to the Upper East Side, is that there's people that have been cooped up and they're walking down the West Side Highway in the open air with their families. And, you know, we were out shooting and we're all masked and that's the protocol that we have to use and staying uh, far apart. And we were walking down um, Stop uh, Orchard Street in the yeah, you're not side supposed to touch someone, your face. That's the whole thing. What, I know, but I have. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. never, ever again. Let's retrain. <laughs> I mean, not, not never, ever again. <laughs> I mean, okay. It's corona boils. All right. Obviously. Well, I have these boils on. I yeah. don't know where they came from. It's like very, it's very, I know it's like, it's like 12th century. That's I need cute. Paracelsus to come on and help me. Um, I'm sorry. You know what? The corona, that was a deep... I, I'm derailing your story a little bit. Yeah, no, but it's all right. Now that we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic, I'm trying to imagine the horrible awfulness of the children or adults who invented the ring around the rosy song what monster thought that was a good idea like i can't imagine someone making up oh, a song yeah. about coronavirus well yes. actually that's not true 
but most of those songs are like uh, wash your hands explain explain this for people who might not be smart yeah the song rig around the rosy pocket full of posies ashes ashes we all fall down is a song about contracting the bubonic plague and dying of the bubonic plague and i believe the the posies are flowers that were put onto the the dead and dying person to cover up the horrible stench that was emitted by their de- decomposing bodies um so it's it's miserable and the other day actually i it was a couple of weeks before everything got really crazy apparently someone decided to teach my daughter this horrible song, song. and listening to her sing it it sounded like a it sounded like a nightmare it's just it's really bad why would someone do that it's not that bad because Matt hasn't thought about it in like 48 years. So he's like, oh, that's what it means. <laughs> I mean, I love, I lo- actually love that. Uh, and just to drill it still further, like, um, when I was a young, stupid asshole, I, uh, would get mad when people would say, bless you and you sneeze. He's like, bless you? What? You think that I believe in the God that you believe in? Yeah, whatever. You're, you're 18. You did that? <laughs> no, but like, I thought it. <clears throat> Oh my god! What an asshole you were. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, well, I'd look, listen, <laughs> Moynihan. Um, but so, uh, you but bl- like, bless you. I can't believe this. I'm not. I'm not even Christian. <laughs> it's Woody Allen. I, I, guess so. Woody Allen I guess I don't even know what that was. Um, but like, you get to a certain age, and like, for me, bless you, and now ring around the rosy is a remarkable thing. Yeah, it's this thing that's been handed down over the centuries because of weird shit that happened. Um, yeah, and and you also realize when you when you think about what Camille just said is that ninety percent of the songs that you know, like this rote kind of recitation of from when you were a kid, you never thought about what they meant. And there's a p- time when you think yeah. about it, and you're like, oh god, I never thought about that. Is isn't Camp Town Racers about like gambling and banging hookers or something? Five miles like that? long, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. day. It's five <laughs> miles <laughs> long. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> That's weird. You know I mentioned it one time, but I, it, I, I think I was like, I think I was like sixty-five <laughs> when I realized that the Beatles was like Beatles and then Beat in it, B E A T, and then an actual Beatle. I was like, what? I never just noticed wait, that. Just wait till I blow your mind with what. The uh, song "Please Please Me" is really about. Oh, that—that's well. That one's pretty straightforward in the in the title. A lot of people are still surprised. Uh, there's a lot of uh, songs like that. Um, you know, my dingaling. That was pretty obvious. Um, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I, I just realized that's actually pretty obvious. Yeah, um, pretty straightforward. From, from a man who put like uh, toilets, uh, cameras in the toilets of his uh, women's bathroom at his restaurant. True story. Far seeing, far seeing. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, like pictures of Lily. The uh, Who song, that's right. got a message. I mean, it's just you know, read up on that one. That's a that's a, a spank mag. But yeah, you were saying, exactly. Michael, you were saying something very. No, poetic I was about, saying like uh, this is the thing I, I mentioned this the other day. Is that is that um, you know, this crisis has empowered people to like sneer at you in public if you're like with somebody else or with, in my case, three other people, and. Mm. You know, we're keeping our distance and we're, you know, working, you know, I mean, like, you know, they would probably like if the nurse walks out or the MTA person walks out, you know, with the person they're working with or driving the train, they'd probably get a, like a slow clap where it's like me. You're like, you know what? You're ruining it for everybody. It's it's you. You that do work for Vice. No, but this is my, my other job. And I didn't tell you about that. 
I distribute masks to the homeless. I didn't tell you about that. <laughs> no, it's a You're thing so I do. Discreet that you didn't you know, mention this, Matt. I, I just, just don't like, want to. Bra- I, I mean, it's like understand. understand. All of my all of my generosity is usually anonymous gifts, and like, yeah, push me to it. I'm like, <laughs> sometimes. By the way, I was on the Staten Island ferry today and talking to one of the the deckhands of Staten Island ferry, and uh, there were two of them, and the guys like said something about like you know homeless people and it's like you know the homeless shelter and he's like we're on the fucking homeless shelter and the only thing the guy, as the guy pointed out he's like this is a vector of disease because the only people riding the staten island ferry during the day which is now running every hour it usually goes like 15 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes and it, you know it diminishes and then gets gets closer again and um now it's just homeless people get on because it's, it's free and they yep. it's warm and there's they go ferry out and then they walk off and i said to the guy because we were just shooting on it i said we're not staying in Staten Island. we're getting the ferry back and he's like just follow the homeless people and you'll get on the next one they'll know where it is and i did i walked out and followed them on the next one and i mean it's, fresh it's just air. yeah it's it is Vitamin pretty crazy D. that these spaces that that are normally camouflaged uh by um other people are just literally only homeless people now so that was a staten island ferry today I think, Camille, to the point that you, I know, are angry about uh, in your compound um, is that all around the country and the world in different degrees, depending, but, you know, screw them. <laughs> they live in the wrong place. Or, or not. Or not. Uh, it's amazing. Our, our, our great colleague, Anthony Fisher, wrote a piece for Insider about how the Rhode Island governor decided to send sick the National Guard on mm-hmm. um, people driving with New York plates, mm-hmm. which in Rhode Island is everybody because yes. nobody, oh, I mean, there's some people with, with Massachusetts plates. Nobody in Rhode Island is is rich enough to afford a car, um, <laughs> as we know. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely not. Definitely not Newport or Little Compton or any of those poor places, Matt. <laughs> Little Compton. It's actually not, a place. It's a very rich really? place. It's, yeah, it's right by Newport. It's a very, it's a very it's called classy. Little Compton. It's called. It's it's with yeah. It's with a with an L apostrophe. Like it's like a rapper. It's like a SoundCloud rapper. Uh, Little, no, Little it's but it but it's happening, and this again is rolling out. the The first instances of this were Northern California, probably maybe a little bit in the, in the Seattle area. New York City, New Jersey, and such like, and but we're going to see a ton of this across the country. And I have a, a practical question for you, Camille, in a bit, um, uh, but just sort of as a as a uh, throat clearing exercise. It's amazing to see the latitude that mayors and governors have to say, "Oh, you know, these whole swaths of the economy." no longer can happen right like like there is a constitution the constitution is is mm-hmm. basically set up and especially the bill of rights to tell the government what it can't do government's doing a lot of the stuff that it can't do right now um mm-hmm. and there's a lot We're of seeing that it can't do very much actually right now uh, which is uh, perhaps separate but very related conversation but it's amazing to watch uh, one example um, is in Los Angeles, where I don't know if it was county or city, uh, where they the question is, OK, we need to shut down any essential services. This is something that's going to happen probably in most of the country. Um, the difference, the designations of what is essential, what is inessential. 
which is really interesting to follow, especially in the sales of liquor in those few remaining retrograde states like Pennsylvania, where the state still has like a stake in liquor sales. In New Hampshire, yeah. Chances are their their versions are a little bit different. Um, but uh, so what is essential and what is inessential? Well, that's at the discretion of the governor or the mayor. Well, in Los Angeles City, uh, the mayor, Eric Garcetti, said, well, obviously, inessential includes um, uh, guns. And as Camille knows from being in a militia outer <laughs> bumfuck, like the only thing that people want to buy even more than toilet paper is all the guns mm. all the time. Amen plus that, all brother. the ammo. Yes, yeah. sir. Clack, clack. Um, <laughs> and this ended up because things like this around guns tend to be challenged immediately by a whole series of lawyers who are all geared up to do that. It was challenged and basically defeated. They couldn't inessentialize gun sales. But if you think about it, mm -hmm. just as a, a, a kind of concept, when you give governors and mayors and it, in, in many liberal fantasies, I don't mean liberal, I should say progressive fantasies right now, they want to give Trump this power. Mm -hmm. Please, Trump, order the lockdown national for mm -hmm. the next two or three weeks. It's the only way that yeah. we can do this. And I understand what I understand yeah. where they're coming from epidemiologically. But let's also think about like there is a constitution and there is also a practical consideration of what happens when a politician has the power to decide what is essential and inessential. And weirdly enough, it might have something to do with their ideological priors on who they think is good and who they think is bad. And these discussions, they're happening a little bit here and there, but it's largely on the margins right now. And like you feel like a crank oftentimes bringing them up. Camille, you said you said uh, you mentioned a Times article that I didn't read the kind of pricey of it that you gave. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with this argument. What was it? And um, it sounded good and it was in the Times. So like maybe people should read that. I don't know what to, what was the premise of the piece? Well, yeah, it was a great piece. Um, the, the title of it was for autocrats and others. Coronavirus is a chance to grab even more power. Um, and the the piece itself is written by uh, a couple of different contributors, it seems, um, and uh, surveys a lot of the the typical trouble spots that people might expect when we talk about sort of authoritarianism um, and dictatorship and unstable governments, and of course documents the various ways that they are leveraging this particular emergency to further consolidate power. Um, I mentioned Viktor Orban of Hungary uh, earlier, um, and uh, that actually I think made quite a few headlines yesterday. Um, although when you actually read the account of just what these new laws are, at least the way they're described, many of them seem ostensibly defensible. Like if you're saying things in public and it is making our ability to confront this, this viral emergency, this pandemic, if you're impeding our ability to do things um, or spreading misinformation, you could be prosecuted. And I think there are probably a lot of Americans who would be totally supportive of something like that here in the United States as well. And they're and and, and they're not on the Victor Orb Orban uh, end of politics. No, yeah. no. This is this is folks from the left and the right. I've seen plenty of people on the left who are who are pleading for tougher restrictions and sanctions on Americans to force them to comply with these various stay-at-home um, orders. Um, but the piece also does uh, make its way to places like the UK. Even they have adopted laws that are 
potentially problematic. Uh, these these various um, policies that are being adopted, restricting people's movements, have in many cases been adopted, or at least in some important cases, been adopted without any sort of timetable for when this stuff sunsets, for when things are supposed to roll back. And it's not obvious that some things won't roll back. In places like Singapore, um, which have been celebrated for how successful they've been in cracking down on the outbreak, uh, the way that they've done that is by what is, by definition, mass surveillance. They're able to do this intense, intensive contact tracing where they can go back and look at the 15 other people that came into contact with you during the day because they're tracking your movements. Um, and they also have uh, scanners set up all over the place, which are collecting temperature data. It is very possible that in the near future in the United States, after we've overcome this emergency, we will not only advocate for those things, we will adopt many of those same things. And there is going to need to be robust legal safeguards that are adopted in order to protect people's freedoms if they care about such things after this. Um, and there's going to be need to be a robust response from journalists who are skeptical and thoughtful and actually asking serious questions about how these programs are designed. Although in the current moment, it's not obvious that they're up to that task. Um, and you're also going to want to have great watchdogs like the ACLU, who is on the case and paying close attention to this. But uh, unfortunately, I think that, that there's been a, a disquieting silence um, from most of the pundit class and from a lot of the circles that I would expect uh, people to be piping up and talking about the actual material risks to civil liberties and not just risks, the explicit violations of civil liberties that have already happened. Like when the federal government and the state governments are in the states in this particular case, because the federal government hasn't done this yet, um, but when state governments are telling members of churches that they're not allowed to assemble, like that is a violation of church and state. And Perhaps it can be argued that the state ought to have the right to do that in the context of a viral outbreak. Um, but as Judge Knapp said in a piece that you could find today, um, he's an indispensable uh, American <laughs> treasure. Uh, and I, I bless God for him every day, um, which is kind of like myself in this particular yeah. case, given the new religion sure. that I'm pioneering. You'll hear more about it later and have an opportunity Bonus to track. submit yeah. an application and a headshot, ladies. <laughs> Headshot. Um, 15 day quarantine and the shed out back uh, before you can come inside. <laughs> Don't. Ladies. Well, yeah, that's fine. Ladies. With in air quotes. Um, but as the judge mentioned in his piece, you know, to, to the extent you have these liberties and these freedoms, if they disappear the moment uh, a crisis emerges, whatever that crisis happens to be, if they if they start to fade at those points, do you really have these freedoms and liberties or do you have just sort of a, a grant from the government when they decide it's permissible? Um, and I, I can only hope, um, and at times I fantasize about being it myself, that there will be legal challenges to some of these statutes um, and to some of these actions, not because they may not be necessary um, but because the the compromises that we adopt uh, in the pursuit of safety and public health like need to be vetted and tested. And if if I can go a little bit further, because I'm on a soapbox here a little bit, there's two two categories of things that bother me. It's both the fact that there is a presumption and a lack of conversation about sort of the necessity of 
essentially like any sort of restriction that's mentioned today. Like the only serious question that you're allowed to ask is not so much whether or not this restriction will work or whether it's appropriate to do. It's, are we going far enough? Relatedly, I think so many of these restrictions seem objectively stupid. There is no epidemiological basis, so far as I can tell, for a curfew. You are not more susceptible to COVID-19 at 11 p.m. at night when the lights go out. Suddenly, these viruses are able to penetrate your epidermis in a more serious way. It's just absurd. I mean, the premise is in South Florida, right? Is is like people going out, gathering at night and drinking and being being social. But it's not only in South Florida. There are other places around the world where this is No, happening. I know, and I know. It, I think that absurd. is absurd. The yeah. And yeah. The, the, the notion of police officers randomly stopping people and asking them for their identification and inquiring about where they're going and whether or not they're out of their house for an authorized reason. I thought the Democratic primary, we were against stop and frisk. We, we were a moment ago. <laughs> we're back to de Blasio. We're pro de Blasio de has also now. this week um, suggested that uh, he's going to task members of the New York Police Department to go down, take a look at the trains and pull people off of subway cars if too many of them are in the car, which again, stop and frisk bad. Armed train conductors, which, totally by fine. the way, is a situation they've created themselves by cutting back um, uh, much of the MTA service. Is that you know the cars were essentially empty, one person to a car last time I was on the train, and now the um, the train traffic is so is so uh, like inhibited by the the city government that everyone is on the six train from you know Woodlawn down to their jobs in the city. People doing like particularly because they're far out. I mean, mm-hmm. the people who are doing these like you know, necessary jobs that, you know, people that can't run to the Hamptons um, are packed into trains, you know, and, and I you yeah. know, see a lot of this stuff. It's not, we can get mad about people on the West Side Highway looking at the uh, the uh, ship pulling in, but there are people doing this every day who, and those are the people who are most in contact with other people because they're working at bodegas and they're, you know, doing all sorts of other things. Um, the other thing about this is, is, what's frustrating about it is that try to look back you can start in the new deal just start there randomly and you can think about the things the new deal we talked about the Schechter case the the chicken case the sick chicken case and Mm -hmm. um the stuff that was knocked down by the courts obviously but the stuff that wasn't just allow that to exist and you realize that everything that gets through stays there it doesn't go away once you establish these things they never go away, whether they're social programs, yes. whether they're big government agencies yeah, yeah. like like uh, the TSA and Homeland Security mm-hmm. and all this stuff that started after 9-11, we're living with today. And now we're gone long enough that people just never remember that that's when it started. Like, oh, did you know that Homeland Security started at 9-11? The people that are young people I know would be like, oh, really? I thought that existed from the 40s. It's always, it's always been, always there. been there. And yeah. it always will be there because these are the things... Of course of course, we need to defend exactly. the Exactly. Who doesn't like that? It's like, <laughs> you like homeland insecurity? Come on, man. Uh, so, you know, it, it, is, it is incumbent upon people who desire more power. And not even more power. Mm-hmm. I would say, I would be slightly less cynical than that and say people desire to use difficult times to say, this is when people get most excited and they get incredibly heavy breathing. They say, you know why I believe in all these things that Bernie Sanders believes or that Donald Trump believes is because in times like this, particularly in the Sanders thing, this is when it's so needed. 
right? And so they're re recapitulating all of their ideas that they've been talking about and saying, no, 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 it now is the time and taking advantage of this opportunity. So there's an incredible benefit in panic. I mean, panic is great, right? For, for people who want to further whatever ideological agenda they're, they're, they're trying to further because calm reason discourse is something that we demand when we're watching Sean Hannity or the president or even Rachel Maddow. And then right now we say you are a thought criminal of the worst order and you're probably responsible for those bodies piling up uh, at a hospital in Queens because you're saying, hmm, I don't know about this. Let's let's bring it back. It's like, no, no, we have to do something now. And I've been sending you guys tweets from otherwise sensible people that are saying you are like this, you know, the, who's the guy from Stanford with the Greek name? John Ioannidis Ionides, or something? Yeah. Yes. And it's like his <laughs> his piece, the response to that was like, oh my God, this man is a, th- a thought criminal who is, and again, I have read some of the criticism of his stuff in which I find the criticism fairly convincing too, but it's done in a reasoned way among scientists and scientists have different points of view and this is how you get to the truth, right? People are, you know... Interestingly, this debate isn't happening with the same vigor in Sweden, where um, we're watching that fairly closely to see what the what that approach brings. Does it bring piles of bodies? And I suppose when it doesn't, if it doesn't, the response will be well because they have a they have a very um, aggressive healthcare system that's very good and it's available to everybody and they're prepared. Blah blah blah. Right? Are there are there are cultural differences that account I mean there for probably it? Sweden, are, but um, I. Iceland yeah. is another place where things are quite different. There are, right? Well, yeah. Uh, it's trust a culture of no, it's trust true. and shame, trust, right, Moynihan? Like, uh, All of no, that stuff is of, of changing. Conformity. It has changed a lot it's in the past true. years. But, but for sure, that culture of trust is what the Swedes often point to. And the homogeneity of the culture has is, is, is changed quite a bit, too. We're seeing that in, in health outcomes and results and, and, of course, in education outcomes and results. So, you know, I mean... We'll see, but but at the same time, I do find it very frightening in a way that somebody presented with a crisis, and this is doubtless a very real crisis, um, are saying, well, let's push through all these things that I think are... I'll give you an example. In the, the New York State legislature, a bill is wending its way through. And, and by the way, if you don't notice, there is a simmering war that is happening in the Democratic Party in New York uh, New York State, from progressives against uh, Governor Cuomo. It is because of like, we have to, you know, we're having to have this $6 billion tax shortfall because of all this stuff. We have to take an ax to certain things. They're looking at Medicare and Medicare is giving everybody heart palpitations. And the thing that everyone is actually freaking out about, if you look at actually the, the, the interactions of people on the progressive left in the city who run organizations um, that advocate for some of these causes, the irritation now is, and there is a bill, I mean, imagine this, think about this, and I'm not a legal scholar, so all of the lawyers, who have so many lawyers listen to the show, can write in and say, here is the constitutional issue with, is, is a cancel rent bill that would allow um, tenants who meet a certain threshold to not have to pay the person, and th- the same thing is true of a landlord, they have to meet a certain kind of threshold too. They're not, they, they don't have to pay their rent for three months and do not owe that rent after the fact. 
Oh, so there that the the government would then so this demand is than the Cuomo mortgage yeah. bill, which just moves several the, of your payments to to the bank. back end into the banks. Yeah. And says that you, you can't be evicted can't right be away. Evicted, which I think is totally understandable, you know, I think I mean, right yeah, now, because this is a, a crisis of that, the, that, that is a crisis of, of, of a Chinese virus and a crisis that <laughs> is being responded to by the government. Look at Camille's happiness. Do you see it? Chinese virus. Yeah, it I, said that. It. I said that for you, Camille. Thank you. I, 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 I don't think I've ever said that except for just to make you happy. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll also accept CCP virus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. This, yeah. I'm, I'm Chinese corona. I'm generally against going out of your way to do any sort of blame placing right now. Because I just went out of I my way to place a blame. Just to amuse you right there, by the way. But yeah, but I think but I think the CCP we make an exception for them because this is literally yeah. their fault. Yeah. Um, and there's some people the- online, one person in particular at the New York Times who's really been um, embarrassing himself on this front of China and, and the WHO. But uh so yeah, mm-hmm. this anyway, this bill is is saying you don't have to pay this. Um and, and they're very, 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 very angry at Cuomo and saying he's ignoring us. And he's like, you know, we got to cover it. And they're like, no, we don't. And all these housing groups are saying, like, this is our moment right now. And of course, as a renter in New York City, I have the entire government and city government and laws on my side. The state laws are on my I side. Have for a long time. A long time. Long you cannot get rid of me. Yeah. yeah. I haven't paid rent in this apartment <laughs> in six years. It's nice. Um, it's a nice apartment, but it's the six years I haven't paid. That's why I can afford to live here because I don't pay for it. Um, but th- th- this is the thing that's actually happening now. And there is, you can look on Gothamist. Um, there was a bunch of pieces about this recently of, of all these rent strikes that these people are organizing and cascading throughout the city. And the idea is we're not on the hook for this. And they want it indefinitely. And it begins uh, April 1st. So, yes. uh, so tomorrow, tomorrow will be very interesting to watch. I wanted, before we uh, stray too far from the topic, um, I think the three of us are agreed in the um, not really well thought through or not really well constitutional aspects of some of the government diktats of <laughs> of what you can and can't do now yeah. um, in certain places. Um, a lot of it's arbitrary. A lot of it yeah. is based on guess science uh, at best and so forth. But I want to challenge uh, – Colonel Kurtz here uh, <laughs> to describe. We call him Black Kaczynski. <laughs> Black Kaczynski. It's it's really a great name. God, it's a good name. I'm fine with that. Um, the badge uh, of honor. So, yeah. Black Kaczynski. <laughs> um, how do you achieve, in, from a policy standpoint, in a Camille-tastic way, mm-hmm. how do you achieve the kind of curve-flattening yeah. social distancing that policymakers have been using as the reason for these policies that you disagree with? How do you how do you get to that place yeah, yeah. which um, most people are assuming is a good yeah. place to be, which is that people are not in each other's face swapping mucus at a bar let me start by saying it's complicated god that that was a shocker we didn't see that one coming yeah and 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 my my approach to this um will certainly not satisfy anyone in the crowd who says oh my god 
shut down the country, put it on pause for several months, because I think that isn't just a bad idea and it isn't just constitutionally dubious. It is completely impractical. A bad policy that people will not abide by is never going to be a good idea. There is no universe in which Americans will actually stand by and do that sort of thing and you actually achieve the outcome. If compliance is important to the result that you hope to achieve, they won't do it. So that's a bad idea. So I think you almost necessarily have to strike a balance between the aspiration and the the likelihood of compliance. It, to not even say anything about the constitutional um, adherence of the policy or the constitutional coherence of the policy, that it, it, it is consistent with those principles. Um, one thought that I had today uh, was about the experience I've had over the past several weeks when I've ventured outside of my house occasionally, because I'm, I'm largely observing the social distancing stuff. Um, but I've ventured outside of my house to go do shopping and stuff like that over the course of the last several weeks. And I wonder about your own experiences. There are very few instances, and there are none in the last week and a half, um, but a few before that in the sort of week and a half before that, where I've gone into be it a small cafe or a massive chain retailer where people have not already absent mandates, taken steps, material steps to try and improve the, the safety of their establishment. Private entities and agent and, and, and enterprises um, are all generally at this point and were doing so before they were asked here in Virginia, attempting to mitigate the problem. And citizens are doing the same thing as well. In Target, they have these helpful bubbles on the ground that tell you where to stand. In CVS, it's precisely the same thing. And in the local Thai restaurant here in deep in the South Virginia, and there is one of those, um, but only one. Actually, there's two, but I've only visited one. The inside of the restaurant has been closed for weeks, and you can go in and pick up food, but it's generally one at a time, and it's also a circumstance that when you arrive, everyone in these small cafes is gloved and masked. The notion that you actually need these mitigation policies, I'm not certain just how much safer people are because of these policies. And when so often the policies themselves are accompanied by a plethora of other accoutrements that don't actually make anyone safer, like you're not allowed to go to the park for more than 30 minutes, or if you're going to camp in this national park, you need to stay for at least 14 days, or you can't go to the beach to sunbathe. It is entirely possible to do all of those things, including opening your restaurant, your, your business establishment on Wednesday morning, and to take appropriate materially significant mitigation steps on your own to make your establishment and the people who frequent it, even if less frequently, safer. And I think the conversation about the degree to which these mitigation measures are actually making people safer. And again, I'm not saying it's not possible that they are. I think it's entirely likely that some of them are. But the degree to which these things are actually making people safer is something that's worth at least thinking about. It's, it's the reason why I said that the Imperial College study, the, the notion of there ever being a, a scenario where 
we essentially do nothing in response to the presence of this virus. That was never a possibility. People started doing things almost immediately. And I think you can, you need to cultivate trust and you can actually compel people to do things without forcing them to do things. There's a lot in there, so, but on the quickly on the Imperial College thing, and I saw some criticism of people were saying that, well, um, Neil Ferguson, the doctor, backed off of this. And that's not the case, right? Um, no. And it's not the case because he said, well, no, this is with us doing something. Our previous numbers were if we did nothing. And, you know, it's funny because we're criticizing people, um, you know, justifiably so for saying, oh, they backed off those numbers because um, they weren't paying attention to the actual fine print. Well, they weren't paying attention to the fine print in the first study either. And I don't know if you remember when that came out and everyone's talking about the two million. I never heard anyone say that that was if we did absolutely nothing. And as Camille points out, there was never any possibility that we were going to do absolutely nothing, right? And, you know, a couple of things about this is that there's no way of enforcing this stuff either because you have a couple of things, three things that you think of off the top of your head. Well, no, number one is that the NYPD in particular has about 10% of the forces at sick and calling in sick. Um, and a lot of them are actually sick and officers have died from from corona-related uh, uh, diseases, problems, issues. Um, that's the first thing, but that's an obvious one. The second thing is that you cannot put them in jail because we're letting people out of jails right now. We don't want to put people in smaller confined spaces when we're trying to actually fight this. That doesn't make any sense. And the third thing is you're going to find them. <laughs> well, we're in an economy right now where it is cratering and we're going to have 30% unemployment. We're going to find people for going outside of their houses. It is utter nonsense. The thing about it is there are there is so much misinformation about about this stuff out there that you can routinely talk to people who don't believe they can leave the house. And they, they think they might be unsafe walking down the street. That is not true. You know, it is simply not true. And that's not how people are getting, getting this stuff. Just walking down the street, somebody walks by them. You know, I did see a gathering in the Hasidic neighborhood of ultra-Orthodox Jews the other day that was kind of appalling, considering there had been an outbreak in this, in this neighborhood. And it was on Saturday, and it was pretty pretty aggressive. And I was like, holy cow. And the, the, the city said, we're going to do things to break that stuff up and maybe, maybe do something to, you know, tell these people, you can't do this. You can't really do this. But as far as like what the people, when you, t you go to like where my mother lives or something, it's not as if you have to enforce people not drinking booze during prohibition because everybody wants to drink booze. Right. Whereas now it's like, you go to old people in my mother's neighborhood, they don't want to go outside. Because they think that if they go outside, they're going to die. Oh my God, my mom is convinced. Yes, and, and my mother's neighbor has corona, and she's 70-something. And it's like, I was like, oh, my goodness. And my mother said to me, by the way, she's like, the cough was... And I was like, how are you hearing this cough? Get away. What's wrong with you? Do I have to give you instruction here? And she's like, no, it was through the door. I heard her across the thing. I'm like, yeah, I don't believe you. But this is the thing. People don't want to be interacting with people. We see the guys at spring break. They're mm -hmm. dumb kids and they're also going to spread this stuff, but they're not the people who are most likely to die. Also, that's a lot of misinformation we see now. Um, people can die when they're younger. We don't know what's wrong with them. We don't know if they don't have any um, pre-existing conditions or symptoms um, of other things. We have no idea, but right. those stuff, that stuff is getting a lot a of attention and not know about it. So yeah, it's, that's it's a, a possibility. that's a possible. And it's possible also that this yeah. wreaks havoc on people um, 
even if they are 22 years old. But every one of those that happens is a front page story. I saw like 16 year old kid in France. And I mean, a lot of people are dying in France, but this is on the BBC. It's in the New York papers, et cetera. And isn't, isn't it nearly always the case that if you read the story, like the headline will say something often. like first, first child under the age of 12 dies in New York. I've and seen a lot of it's those. in like the fifth line of the article that they mentioned that also had underlying conditions, which, but look, I mean, the, the Imperial College, there's so much we don't said, know. There's a lot we there's don't so know. so much that we don't know. But look, we have to, we have to move on this stuff, whether we know things or not. But, um, you know, it's just trying to do it in a sensible way. But the second Imperial College study that you sent today, I think, Camille, about how mm-hmm. the mortality rate was a lot lower, they think, than yeah. we initially understood because we we're not testing everybody. Right. They also did point out in that explicitly in the Imperial College study, which is what the other Imperial College study, different, different academics, I presume, mm-hmm. that, that this is, mostly affecting people over 60 and, and, right. and, and that they said in the, either the press release from the study or an interview, and you can check this out where they said, like, look, the other stories are going to get a lot of attention, but you know, they happen, but it's mostly, you know, localized in this, in this population. So yeah, we do, there's a lot of things we do not know. And we obviously have to take significant and, and I would say pretty serious action and, and, and we're doing so. But I think that, you know, the concern that you talk to business owners about, and I've been talking to a lot in the past couple of days, in the past week, is that if this stuff is lifted, people won't come back. Think about that for a second, right? That's that's a huge issue, yeah. I mean, th- this is, do we need laws and, you know, more force to keep people at home? Why is that when I'm on the Patreon, we're talking about like, oh, it's a Times Square, there's nobody there. Literally right. nobody. Why right. am I down at Staten Island Ferry? The only people that were on today were like homeless people and other people coming into the city to work. Why, when I was in the Lower East Side the other day, was I walked down Orchard Street in the middle of the street at seven o'clock and not a single car came by. People are abiding by this. And I think that that Governor Cuomo has been smart about resisting um, the calls for a heavier government hand in this. And he's mm-hmm. threatened, he of course threatened to sue the absurd governor of Rhode Island who wants it's to appropriate. go yep. looking for New Yorkers. I mean, good God, imagine that. And and they have rescinded that policy. So they, they they're no under threat of a lawsuit. That. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, and we should move on to, to some other stuff. I mean, we've, we've talked at length now over the past couple of weeks about the various categories of concern that I have. Um, you mentioned earlier, Moynihan, that obviously there are circumstances where we don't have all of the data and there are important questions that we haven't answered, but we still, we, we ought to act. Like we're going to take some steps and we do that in life all the time. Um, but the, the thing that seems to be dictating a lot of the action here is the precautionary principle, um, except it's the precautionary principle operating in one direction for the most part. It is, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that like, are we doing enough? Like, is there something else that we ought to do? Um, and it's almost never the, the trade-offs and the costs that we have to pay. Um, and it is, it's not just the, the determination, it's an almost like boastful determination not to take a look at the trade-offs and not to consider the costs. So that's, that's one thing. Um, but the, the scarcity of good data here isn't merely a consequence of, well, it's just early and we don't know. In some cases, it, and it is increasingly the case as we go on, it's really a it's a it's a lack of leadership 
and it's a, a failure to actually pay attention to the things that matter. Like the fact that we don't actually have good sample data available in a place like New York um, or even federal sample data where they go in and they take a, a broad cross section of some specific population and actually go in and do testing there for people who are symptomatic and people who aren't symptomatic to try and establish a baseline for what actually is the rate of infection here in New York. The fact is that in places like Iceland, when they've actually done these broad studies, there are indications that, and this is different from the study we talked about before, that as much as like 50% of the population might, um, or 50% of the cases might be people who are asymptomatic. And if that's the case, then that suggests something about the efficacy of these like hard mitigation measures and suggests that you might need to try something different. And suggest um, that your, so your your mortality rates are uh, much better than you presume. Are much too. better than we expect. In in which case, we probably ought to be doing something. But it also suggests that the disease is perhaps a lot more prolific in spreading than we suspect. Which might suggest that some of the mitigation efforts that we're taking aren't aren't nearly as effective as we imagine. There is a, a profound presumption about just how potent they are likely to be. In which case, they're worth whatever damage they cause because they can prevent the crisis. Um, but it's just not always, it's not always obvious that, that, that is, um, that that is the case. So I, I just think that there's a lot we don't know. And at some point in the future, and maybe we'll, we'll break off here and, and turn our attention to something else. I Matt know that the Nassim, oh, well, he can yell at me too, but the, <laughs> there's like the Nassim Talebs of the world who have a very particular perspective on how we ought to be, operationalizing the precautionary principle with this kind of category of risk. Um, and at some point I do want to have that conversation and we should probably find someone to take the other side of that debate, maybe Nassim himself, but I doubt it. And also he's just kind of a bit of an asshole as bit smart as asshole. I think he is. Um, bit of an asshole. Wow. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll say only that I get, I get his argument with respect to GMOs, and he's just wrong. They save a lot of people's lives. They're not nearly as dangerous as he imagines. I mean, I'm not sure that they're dangerous at all, but yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the same defect in that argument is similar to the defect with the pandemic argument. So I, I'll say only that. But Matt, go ahead. I'm sorry. Two things. One is that... Uh, Iceland should never be taken as a, a, a sample of anything. It's a weird country. <laughs> it is a weird country. It's a weird country. Yeah. Like literally everyone is cousins. <laughs> yes. They're all related yeah. to each other. It's just a little bit weirder than everybody else. I was, I was only suggesting that if those results are at all instructive, then it has material significance we don't know because we haven't even bothered to look. We're not asking the questions. People are looking and, and asking questions. It's like that. It's just that they're looking and they're asking of questions is not the dominant topic of discussion. The dominant topic of discussion mm -hmm. is like, you know, Donald Trump. Isn't it true that you said this on February twelfth? Right. Um, right. 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 As opposed to this. Um, other thing I would say is that I'm not sure that you're using precautionary principle right. 
right? I think the, the, Oh, tell me about it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not precautionary principle splaining Camille because you're going to adjust your <laughs> ladies' frames and get right at me. Um, <laughs> keep in mind that you can't see this at home, but Matt is drinking Czech Bekarovka and Coke in a very, very big <laughs> yeah, cup. It's, big. it's a big, like Bart Simpson. Like, yeah. Uh, Look thing at that. Here. This is a Homer Simpson. Yeah, whatever. Duff beer. Wow. Um, that's impressive. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, precautionary principle is that I don't want to allow you to experiment with X, with cloning sheep, because if you clone sheep, then who know, knows what kind of fresh hell you're going to unleash on the world, right? Um, which is a thing, and uh, it's a thing as someone who once had a picture of Dolly, the cloned sheep, up uh, in front of my Bloomberg terminal uh, in 1996 and 1997, um, as a sign that the world has gone crazy, man. Um, I can, I can get with, uh, I can understand that use the precautionary principle, but that I don't think is what is, uh, governing people's sense during the coronavirus. I think instead, I, I think there's no, my, my sense of it is that in the absence of the thing that everyone, I think, uh, agrees that we need, which is actual data about who's infected and who's not. We don't have that. Mm -hmm. We didn't have tests, especially in the United States, um, as compared to Germany and South Korea in particular, and maybe some other places. Um, what are you going to do? Right. So like, it's a, it's, there's some other principle. I don't know what, what it's like fancy name is, but it's like, it's a, maybe it's a prophylactic principle. Like since we don't know, no, seriously, since we don't know this, yeah. it's not that we're afraid to try this new thing. It's that we're afraid of, of like walking out in the world. We have to cover, we have to become the bubble boy. We have to become John Travolta in the movie from 1976, straight to TV, and do like chest push push-ups. I can't believe the bubble boy. In, in like an orange suit and like touch our girlfriend through like 17 different hefty bubble. bags. Uh, that's the only way that we can do it. That's what you're talking about. It's not precautionary. It's not like I don't want to test the medicine. It's that I I don't have any tests, and so um, in that vacuum of knowledge. There isn't a lot of pushback to the idea of like, screw it, let's shut everything down. And we have Bill de Blasio in this city that two of the three of us decided to be bravely staying fidelitous yeah. towards. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> he's like he's telling um, churches and synagogues that he will arrest them, maybe or like close them down, maybe permanently if they don't uh, agree to shut their doors at this time. Uh, and that comes like, I don't know, 12 days, 13 days after which he's like, ah, you know, people don't really spread the, the virus amongst each other. So I don't think it's mm -hmm. I don't, precautionary principle. I don't think is exactly it. It's that we don't know. And so therefore put all of the hazmat suits around everybody and mm -hmm. forever, uh, and we're not going to take any trade-offs into consideration. Let's just do this thing now. And I think that's where all the momentum is being. And I agree with you that uh, that uh, the lack of any pushback on that for or noticeable pushback has been has been terrifying. Just a, a I, final I, final point on this well, is I, that well, Matt Matt is wrong. So okay. I can't possibly. Is, I that, can, is that the final so, point? Can you just say Matt is wrong so, and then we can so, move on? So, succinct, succinctly, 
in the case of serious or irreversible threats to the health of humans or the ecosystem, acknowledged scientific uncertainty should not be used as a reason to postpone preventative measures. That is from the much hated, for appropriate reason, World Health Organization. And that is the way that the precautionary principle works in the sphere of public health. So that's the actually opposite of what precautionary principle usually is made. But in this context, it's a similar category of risk in that it is a, it's a fat tail risk. See, now I'm, now I'm d- wow. using te- television. Super tell um, and, and, and the, the risk is of like the exponential growth trajectory of this pandemic to get out of hand if we don't smash it quickly. That's that, so that, it's like, but, uh, but I, I think that I will let our actually, listener viewers go to the tape, but that's just, that's, it's kind of the opposite. Right, I'll send you the link it, to the hated it, world, world health good. organizations website. So you can take a look at it. They're not the only ones who describe it in this particular way. And I understand the point that you're making. Um, I, I also think that there are, there are limitations to that. Policy. I mean, the, the principal thing is it's almost as if you're taking into account the risks on one side of the ledger and ignoring the risks on the other side of the ledger. If you're operating from the position, the vantage point of we don't know how bad it might be, so we have to throw everything at it. Correct. Because this Do you know the worst the thing about this correct. is that when it's of, of, of those things, that's it. Like one is the, that the, I, the, I fear, <laughs> I fear of like, you fuckers. You're like talking like uh, you have to get close to the, the microphone. worst thing about this is if it was a podcast, I could actually fast forward, but I'm actually living it <laughs> live, which is horrible. You were able to like refill your drink. Fuck off. No, yeah. it's like, no, I came, I, I came back and it was still going. Do I fear the technology and so therefore block it? Or do I fear, yeah. uh, do I fear like the absence of technological knowledge and so therefore come up with some kind of crazy shit? Those are like uh, actually opposite concepts. Yeah, I'm, I hear you. Okay, the definite that your defi- your definitional fight is interesting to you too. Um, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to pull us somewhere else. The only thing I was going to say to cap this off is that um, as much as I think that what is happening right now in New York City seems to me to be a- appropriate and it's not too onerous uh, for me at the moment. Um, it is getting that way. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people are feeling that way too. And we're going to see a very, very big change when other people start getting, taking pay cuts that are blue check marks and the ones that are driving this conversation online. Um, and I think that it's really funny that one of my concerns about this is a class warfare concern is, you know, the number of people that get to go out and decamp to the Hamptons or decamp to their nice places somewhere else. And then, Virginia. you know, take a, make, make a run on the grocery stores and the rest of it. But uh-huh. You know, when we talk about opening things up again and it's somehow solidified into this, well, that's a Donald Trump argument because he's like, well, you know, the, 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 uh, prescription shouldn't be worse than the disease or whatever he said. And it's uh, right. open up by Easter, which of course, as Camille mentioned earlier, he's backed off on. When that becomes a Donald Trump argument, anyone who sort of trespasses on that idea is then yes. complicit. And you're, you know, how dare you say that you're killing people? My concern about this is my, week plus interaction with people who are poor people. And this is a concern for poor people who don't have any savings, don't know how they're going to pay rent tomorrow, Absolutely, uh, have been laid off from their jobs, furloughed, quote unquote, which means they're never Mm -hmm. coming back, but they're told that they might, uh, don't have health insurance, um, work in bar jobs or in restaurant jobs, 
all those things are cut off. And we can say this, we can sit here and say, let's, you know, argue about the scientific data and blah, blah, blah. This is not a luxury that other people have. And I talked to someone the other day who was, you know, didn't know too much about the science and was, you know, somebody was not making a lot of money in their life and was like, I don't know how to feed my, my family. And I don't know what good this is doing right now. Why yeah. are we all doing this? Why are we doing yeah. this? And I tried to explain. It. I was like, look, here, you know, I actually am paying attention to this in a different way than you are because you're just trying to, I mean, bright guy, but he's trying to make ends meet. And so sure. I think that there's a way in which you can reframe this and ask serious questions about it if you're a Bernie supporter, if you're, um, you know, on the sort of progressive end of the Democratic Party or just, you know, a, a, you know, a social, a social Democrat or whatever you might be. Um, because this is a thing that will really brutalize the poor in this city much mm -hmm. more than anyone else. And that's yeah. often said, well, this hits the poor. It's like, well, you know, it hits everybody. This is a thing that is really going to screw people up who are poor. And I think a lot of people wonder why we cannot open things in a kind of staggered way, you know, mm -hmm. just say like, okay, well, let's, okay, we, we shut everything down. Can we just open restaurants now, but only 20% capacity and we keep all the tables away from each other. And now we all know, so everyone has to wear gloves when they're at, whatever it might be. Is there yeah. some kind of cockamamie plan that we can do in this readjusted reality in which I can earn a living? And so yeah. when I'm like looking and thinking about this stuff, it's not in a, I need to be heterodox way or, you know, we need to be Trumpian or we need to say, screw the media. The media is uh, selling scare stories. No, I think that the scare stories are are vindicated by, the horrible stuff that's happening all over the world, particularly in places like Italy and Spain. But, you know, what do we do about those people that, that's, that are going to be really destroyed? Their health will be fine, um, but their finances will be utterly and com completely, and some, some places like irrevocably destroyed. So that's, I think that's a worry that not enough people, they're like, well, there's a stimulus. We're sending people $1,000 checks and the rest of it. Uh, okay. Uh, it's not going to go that far if you're, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I, I've just been hearing the tales of how this is really screwing people up and it's starting to like make me panic. And then I, I got a pay cut, which I was like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I'm yeah. Sorry. I mean, thankfully the fifth column is, <laughs> is, is still there so I can, you know, make a tiny bit of money. Uh, but anyway, no, no, so your, your Patreon contributions help. Yes, they genuinely. really do because I don't know oh, if I'm going to have a job I'm tomorrow. Making up the difference now. God, um, I know it's really, no, it really is. As, it really as you is. say that. As you say that, it reminds me of that the Jerry Taylor um, tweet that I saw today because someone sent it to me to make me upset, uh, where he is quoting he's quoting someone who says, as, as of now, moreover, there is no evidence, none, that these measures, businesses and schools shut down, uh, plus enforced physical distancing, have pushed the people past their breaking point into noncompliance or revolt. Um, it is certainly true that people have not yet been pushed to their breaking point or towards revolt. Um, if that is the benchmark that you're looking for in order to determine whether or not you've gone too far, um, I think you're doing it wrong. I don't think you. I don't. What, so, so explain that to me, Camille. The, the premise of that is what is that? It is a justified policy if people do not revolt. Is that what this is? That was at least, at least to some degree, I can think of some historical examples where that would actually fail. Yeah, that people people aren't yet angry, so we can keep doing this. That's and we'll not keep true. Doing it for as long as we need to. Well, um, I'll tell you but, what. That's a, that's somebody who's listening to their friends 
in a very small circle of people. And I yeah. guarantee you they're not going out there to Staten Island to the people who are like, I can't go to work and I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. It's like, well, there's not a revolt. It's like, okay, if it's, if it's not, you know, Europe in 1848 or something, it's not some revolutions that are going on across, across the continent. I mean, that's kind of meaningless. I mean, we could also suggest that a lot of these people are good people who are not going to take up arms because of this. And they're trying to see how it plays out. But the point is, is that it doesn't mean it's the right policy. It doesn't mean it's the wrong policy either, but it means it's the right policy. And let's just give it some time and see where we are in a month when the $1,000, $1,200 check is not cutting it for everybody. Sure. Or I tweeted something about a friend of mine who was trying to file for unemployment in New York City for a week. And the most amazing thing about this, the most amazing thing about this, I don't know if you saw this tweet that I, it was, I took, I, I posted three screenshots that I was sent. And one of them was like, your time to file is Monday because your name is between A and M or something. And then N and Z, that's Tuesday. And then there was another thing. And the amazing thing is that you can do it on the website between 7.30 and 7 p.m. Monday to Thursday on Friday between 7.30 and 5 p.m. A website, a government website has a fucking opening and closing time. Think about that for a second. That is the people saying, you know what? Amazon should be nationalized and we should make sure that the government is doing all this stuff. It's like, you can't even apply for unemployment insurance at 10 PM. Yeah. After you've been like out in the streets, returning fucking cans because you don't have any money. Yeah. In New York. It's it's the extraordinary, it's the extraordinary scope of the, of the crisis. It's the fact that, you know, I I saw the CNN headline today said something like 80% of Americans are under some of these like lockdown uh, restrictions now. And we've, we've already seen, uh, we don't yet know what the unemployment number will be. It'll be some time before we actually know that. It'll be some time before we know just how massive a hit GDP is taken, but there are indications that it is a massive wave of people. Um, and all of these folks rushing to sign up for these services, um, think of it, think of it this way, rushing to sign up for the mortgage policies yeah. and stuff. It is going to overwhelm these bureaucracies that are already running on skeleton crews. Think of it this way. It, the, 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 the Trump administration was going into November with essentially one data point, right? The economy is the best it's ever been. Unemployment's the lowest it's been in, mm-hmm. you know, in history. This is Donald Trump's. And then he, then he, then he, you know, breaks it down. Black unemployment, women, et cetera. And now the actual administration, members of the administra- administration are saying, don't be alarmed if it's 30% unemployment. The administration who has set everything up for the past year and a half to tout its success in unemployment is now saying, 30%. Uh, really? That's that's serious because they're not even faking at this point. They're like, yeah, it's going to be 30%. We should probably get in front of this a little bit and acknowledge it. That's kind of crazy and kind of terrifying. Matt, do we have any mail from people who have like nice things to say? Or Dude, that's... You've, you've become the guardian of the mail. <laughs> that, I, don't, I don't know how We're that happened. We're not doing mail. We're not this doing is, mail on the podcast. No, but, 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 but the thing about... One. No, it's not that one. But here's the thing, Camille. If we yeah. don't do mail, because the people in the mailbag have other ideas and they're all fucking tired of coronavirus. Yeah. We just talk about this the whole time because nothing else is happening. In, in the mailbag, they're like, yeah. hey. And by the way, I'll just say, if you want to subscribe to the Patreon, if you haven't done it already, I'm going to give you a little incentive to do so. In the last episode, um, someone asked for romantic advice and um, <laughs> I started my, uh, my, um, 
my like uh, dear Michael column. Oh no, in which I uh, well, no, I just gave I gave some very very good uh, romantic. Advice. Well, at least one other person said that uh, like, hey, you guys have stumbled onto something that works here. Oh, I can't. We're talking. Imagine yeah. like what works for who or what, but um, if you have any problems with your significant other. And a lot of you write in, by the way, patron or not, oh to say, no, hold on, Camille, just hang on. I'm gonna, this is gonna, there's a big fortune at the end of this rainbow. Just, just hang on for a second. Dear, dear um, Abby. <laughs> is that, uh, you always say, like, we're trying to get my significant other. This is actually men and women to listen to the call. In the first thing, I was like, oh, that's great. Second time, oh, that's really interesting. Third time, the 48th time, I'm like, why is, why are the other, the significant others so offended by us? <laughs> Is it, is it that hard to get people to listen to us? I mean, we have a huge listenership. Why are the wives and and husbands and why are, why is it there's, I, there's I think oh, it's, so many Matlin Carville relationships out there? No, no, we get we get emails from a lot of uh, fifth column couples. We actually got yeah. an email from a fifth column couple who had a fifth column baby, a beautiful, we did. beautiful child. Um, we got so, a picture of the baby too, didn't we? Little Camille. Yeah, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he only looks like me a little bit. That doesn't mean anything. No, it's, it's not proof of anything. <laughs> no, it's weird because they're because both Matt. the parents are Norwegian, which I thought was strange. Yeah, Matt, Matt pulling a Kobe, Start, a Kobe Bryant there. Start snitching. Shaq. I wish I should have just did what Shaq did. He always pay them all. He pay them all. <laughs> you just buy him a Hummer. Um, question: um, President Donald Trump's approval rating. Uh, is apparently going up in the midst of all of this tumult. His approval rating is going up. It's it's so confounding a fact that yes. the New York Times had a, co- a, a, a column the other day um, or, or a, an article, um, and the title, the premise anyways, because I won't remember the title, was who are the people behind Donald Trump's Climbing approval ratings. They're called Americans. <laughs> they're called Trump supporters. No, no, yeah. but they're all but called Americans. If you actually, look. No, no you look support, at the Gallup. If, if look you're at giving the Gallup him high numbers. marks, you're, you're supporting him in this. In this no, look uh, at the Gallup endeavor. numbers, though. It's it's from seven from seven percent approval um, in March second through thirteenth, um, and March thirteenth through twenty second, it's now thirteen percent amongst Democrats, and for independents from thirty five percent up to forty three percent. So plus eight. For the independents, plus six um, for the Democrats, only plus one for Republicans. So I don't know. Um, I think it's interesting, uh, especially since uh, one of the mainstays. If you actually pay attention to what the the news cycle has included when it comes to Corona stories, because it's very repetitive, it's a lot of the same stuff. Um, apart from the tales of dread and the the constant drumbeat of counting the infection cases and the dead. It's Donald Trump is responsible. Donald Trump didn't do a good job. He keeps screwing this up. His press conferences are so bad that you shouldn't even be allowed to listen to them. Um, and apparently, As someone wrote in to say uh, you should be able to listen to them live. That was I said last. <laughs> that was the difference because apparently the people weren't covering it live. They could right, then right. pick out the things that were true when they were not true. Yeah. And then, but and I then think applaud I might themselves have... for not cutting to it. Yeah. And remind you of that fact. We're not cutting to that. So I, I don't know. Any thoughts, gentlemen, I on, have a, I, on what this means? Because we talked about the election a little bit, only to say that it's sort of disappeared from the radar, but it is still coming. Are Donald Trump's odds of winning going up? I don't know. I don't care, nor do you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that when you can tell in his like, you know, 180p camera that he's wasted. 
There's like one <laughs> pixel that's like Listen. going in circles. Uh, no, there's a, there's a, a tweet this night from uh, Morning Consult that talked about the approval ratings of all. Did you say consult? What, whatever. It's not important. Uh, pronunciation this time. I uh, know. Make sure looking at some sort of porn site. So looking ahead. at all Western leaders or all leaders basically uh, who ha- are subject to approval ratings in the last uh, month compared to before, everyone went up. Everyone went up. And furthermore, I mean, Camille, in posing this question, you're the guy who, who has prefaced about a thousand conversations on this podcast of like, I don't really care about the horse race. I just care this time about how Donald Trump's approval rating is really super high. Um, like it's, we'll see what happens. There's, there's usually a bump that is associated with a rally around the leader thing. Um, when there's a, a, a huge psychic hit to the country, ultimately I, I, in, in a way that I don't mean to sound as disrespectful as it will come off, uh, is that, I don't care. I don't really care about the, 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 the ratings of any leader at any given point of time. Right. Like it's, um, you know, yeah, it, it's March, man. This is the longest March in the history of mankind. Mm. My God, it's still March now. Mm-hmm. Um, and things have changed so much, you know, 30 days ago. Don't even look at what Donald Trump was saying or Bill de Blasio or Mario Cuomo or any other. Or the like, WHO. Or, or WHO. Whoever, a bunch of garbage been, people yeah. there. Um, we're saying about. The WHO is so bad. They're really bad. to get bad. rid of them after hey, this. Hey, uh, Camille, I don't, I don't want to interrupt myself, but can you tell me for just 30 seconds why the WHO is so bad? Because they are completely owned by the Chinese government. I'm completely owned by the red Chinese, by the CCP. (laughs) They've been covering for them since the beginning. That debacle, Mm. I I think it was earlier this week where there was uh, some, uh, a journalist from Hong Kong who was interviewing one of their miserable operatives. If you have not seen um, this, and she asks him a question about Taiwan. And if you don't know, Taiwan is an independent democratic country who's declared their independence from China. China, however, says, no, 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 no. You are part of China. Um, and the World Health Organization, along with a number of very prominent U.S. corporations who have business dealings with China, um, essentially mm-hmm. refuse to acknowledge Taiwan um, as Taiwan. They will not list it on mm-hmm. maps. And in this particular interview, she asks it's explicitly um, for him to comment on the quality or at least the, the nature of the Taiwanese response to the coronavirus pandemic, um, to which he responds with silence. He stares into the camera blankly. There's no stutter or anything, no jitter, but he stares into the camera blankly. And again, this is a, well, this is an interview conducted over Skype. Um, she asks again and he says, I didn't hear you. And she says, let me repeat the question. To which he responds, no, no, just move on. Eventually, he disconnects the call. It is so obvious that he is dodging um, uh, the question here. And it is... Well, he acknowledges it when he says, let's move on, that he knows what you yeah. said. You know? it's, it's illustrative of just how gross the WTO is, who's been covering for China, constantly talks up the quality of their response, and has also helped to obscure the fact that the Chinese have been lying about their case count. There was a, a report in um, uh, the South China Morning Post just the other day about something like 49,000 asymptomatic people who um, were excluded from their counts. Um, so that's just 49,000. 
It's a, a small it's a drop small in the number. bucket. I think they'd also been de- de- denying for some time the the, the uh, World Health Organization that there are any asymptomatic cases of the of the virus, which is again just absurd based on the rest of the results of uh, research that we've actually seen. But in either case, um, I'm sorry, Matt. That was a detour to just say that at the end of all of this, however it ends, we we need to the United States needs to stop funding the World Health Organization. There um, needs to be an alternative. They to also said that drinking doesn't help, and that's by my own personal example tonight. I think I've proven that's yeah. not true. Obviously, no, it's yeah. definitely yeah, helps. You've actually your, cured your yeah, 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 no, no. and your neighbors. No, yeah. you should be uh, at the Oxford uh, Debating Club here. <laughs> Resolved. Matt Welch is a shithead drunk. Yeah. Okay, I, I love you. I went again. Um, World Health Organization um, tweet January. WHO does not recommend any specific health measures for travelers to and from Wuhan, China. Yeah. <laughs> it is they, generally they were against Trump's travel ban. It is generally considered that entry screening offers little benefit while requiring considerable resources. Thank you, WHO. You're amazing. And thank you for recognizing uh, Taiwan, which I think you referred to as uh, Chiang Kai-shek's living room or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the one final thing I'll say about this, about uh, which I didn't say anything about, actually, is... Um, the why are Donald Trump's uh, uh voting so high? I think there's another uh small thing that I've heard a couple of people say um in the past few weeks, and the people who don't follow politics, is that you know, he's a shithead, but it seems like every country has bungled this. So there's kind of a uniformity of bungling. They're like, ah, you know, that it's worse in France, and I see these things about getting ventilators. I'm sorry, worse in Italy. I've seen things mm-hmm. about getting ventilators in France, et cetera. Those are all the things we're going through here. It just seems like that's what happens when something this this acute and this sudden uh, overwhelms a country, and it's not necessarily his fault. That is, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's yeah. a lot of nuance to that, but that is something that I've heard a few times. So that might, you know, in some way explain. That they're like, yeah, he's doing all right too. And you know, Cuomo praised him a few times, but before not praising him afterwards. So the other thing that I wanted to uh, at least like uh, reiterate, because Camille mentioned it before, was uh, Victor Orban's power lunge in Hungary, and he begins yeah. with a lot of power, which he's been accumulating for a long time. Hungary is a post-communist free country. But it's also the avatar of what has been uh, increasingly known as illiberal democracy, um, which, which is what it, Orban himself calls it. Yeah, which is an interesting thing, right? Like, I'm bragging about my illiberalism. Um, I am rejecting a lot of the tenets of what the kind of assumed western values are post world war ii this is surprising to some people who observed orban in his earlier iterations um which he was uh you know an anti-communist pro-western environmentalist pro-capitalist um who was the head or co-head of a party that said that anyone over the age of 30 or 35 should not belong um but he's adapted to the strangenesses of uh, Hungary's nationalist uh, prerogatives over the over the years. And he's become this kind of avatar of uh, the modern nationalist European right. Not right any a, American sense of the word right. Yeah, maybe for sure. too strong. Too, yeah. 
Oh yeah. Well, yeah, but yeah. it's becoming uh, such, and 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 one and one reason why that I bring that up is that just today dropped a piece by a distinguished Harvard Law professor professor named Adrian uh, Vermeule, and I'm sure I'm mm. mispronouncing that, even if I wasn't drunk. Um, that in the Atlantic called Beyond Originalism, <laughs> in which so bad. It's an amazing piece. Actually, it's I'm 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 literally grateful for the piece because he is making a case for, in his own words, illiberal legalism. He is saying that the on uh, the sort of conservative libertarian side of legal uh, uh, argumentation and jurisprudence over the past 50 years, most associated with the Federalist Society, um, that they're just thinking too much about like principle and libertarianism and a bunch of other stuff. And he's going to replace it. We need, we need to be able to enable a strong leader. We need an illiberal legalism. That's his slogan. It's not mine. An illiberal legalism, just like uh, Victor Orban is saying that he needs Victor Orban, who again, this week or in the past seven days, has in a country that in certain moments after the fall of communism was leading the kind of post-communist class of new liberal democracies. And let's Mm -hmm. shelve for the moment uh, Camille's hatred of the word democracies, but like (laughs) uh, they were the good, they were the best graduates, uh, let's say uh, of what came uh, next. And they have been steering themselves into a place where now if you are convicted of spreading fake news, you can go to jail for five years. Um, there's no longer any uh, strong necessity for parliament to pass laws. We could just pass things by decree. Victor Orban, for the last eight to ten years, has been a favorite of a certain type of uh, American conservative that we used to call paleoconservative. It used to be Pat Buchanan and not many others who would say, you know, Victor Orban understands because he also was against free trade agreements. He was against the EU. He was against a bunch of stuff that a lot of paleocons have also been against over the years. And they were also, these are people that were also very pro Putin before Donald Trump even entered the scene politically in any serious way. And it was primarily because Putin expressed fealty to the Russian Orthodox church. And unlike those people that were were in the Kremlin uh, up until 1989, who people like Pat Buchanan hated, but uh, but are, are quite big fans of uh, Putin because and also because of the anti-gay law and things like that. They all they were all very excited about that too. So uh, Orban has been like this poster child for the Bannonite, but I but that's too limiting. Like it's it's there's an actual Catholic integrationalism thing going on that we talked about in the uh, Ross uh, Doubt Hat. Um, episode, whatever. I'm not going to ever get that right. Um, uh, <laughs> but like the manifesto season and all of that, like Victor Orban is in many senses the the kind of natural apparition, you know, uh, or, or extension of what a lot of American conservatives who are using the Trump moment to advance their cause of what they're thinking about. Um, and what they're calling themselves. He calls himself an illiberal Democrat and Adrian Vermeule calls himself an illiberal legalist. And so go read that piece in the Atlantic um, because it tells us what our illiberal friends on the right 
have in store, not just for us, but for the country. And it's instructive. And um, for me, um, uh, incredibly like resonance and disturbing on a lot of levels, but it's also uh, motivational, let's say. Um, when people walk up and wake up in the morning and say, I am going to be the person who is going to smite down liberalism, by which they do not mean Bernie Sanders necessarily. Neoliberalism. Actually, they mean yeah. Um, yeah. neoliberalism. They mean Tony Blair. That's who they're going off against. And they're saying, we need to stop this liberalism and replace it with our sense of constitutionalism is let's make the powerful person more powerful and inflict that on other people. And I wish that I was sort of unfairly summarizing the arguments. I'm actually not go well, read the piece and look at it and know when people say I'm against liberalism, that's a sign that maybe people who identify as liberals in the broader sense should be awakened. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you use the word illiberal several times. I will say that you, I think, have fairly characterized this very stupid, I mean, just profoundly dumb piece of writing. It, it is so lousy with idiotic arguments that are provably <laughs> false and stupid and self-contradictory. No, my favorite thing about it is, mean, really, is when you're, it, it you're not like searching for a word, child. you're just so angry that you pause. You're like, uh, it's not like you can't find the word. You have the words. <laughs> it's, <Yeah. laughs> it's, it's so bad. It's so bad. But, but, but this is not in his defense. It's just to, to give people a little bit of context here. He doesn't, he actually calls this like uh, the the piece the the right um, constitutional philosophy for this moment. He refers to it as common good Jewish jurisprudence, um, as compared to uh, constitutional originalism, which is popular amongst conservatives. Um, the the things he doesn't ever bother to do, which seem indispensable in a context like this, and, and to the extent I say doesn't bother, I mean doesn't do it in a robust way that would give you sort of the, the the meat of the argument or something to really hold on to when having an argument with him. Um, but he doesn't bother to define good um, and doesn't really define common good. And he constantly refers to the importance of, of allowing the government to pursue morality as a goal uh, when it is enacting various laws and exercising power. But again, what the hell is moral? What are these? I bet they're the things that, that he thinks are moral. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to guess. A bit, <laughs> Maybe. Well, that's just it. It's 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 arbitrary, except yeah. it's just what he wants. And the 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 piece again is just it's so bad. At one point, he suggests that the, you know we need to adopt this new form of government because we need a, a powerful central government that is powerful enough to take on the threat of global pandemics and do something about it. And if you haven't been paying attention, um, I'll just say explicitly for the folks at home that there was no shortage of governmental power that resulted in our lack of preparedness with respect <laughs> to the pandemic. And he also mentions global warming. And it should also be said that you could grant the government unlimited power and it would no more guarantee you a good outcome in confronting the specter of climate change. If Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had all of the power and control imaginable, she might institute 
a range of policies, completely impoverishing all of us um, and maybe putting us back in the Stone Age, but it would no more solve climate change. It just wouldn't. So I, I found the piece just distressingly bad. And it, it makes me sad in a way that is hard to articulate that anyone is this profoundly stupid. Um, but it isn't limited to the right. Um, I'm reminded of the tweet that I think, Michael, you uh, sent across um, from the woman who was like Bernie Sanders' oh, yeah. healthcare <laughs> consultant who suggested everything. that we should nationalize everything. The everything cement, the cement works. <laughs> what we've proven, what we've proven recently, yeah, the so is that the Saucony shoe no factory works, that should be state-owned. I mean, everything, everything. Yeah, Batya, <laughs> come on. I I don't understand how in the present moment, in the present climate, in this state of emergency, as people are are so uncertain about the future. The, the thought keeps returning to people's minds that what we really need well, is Camille, a if you look powerful at the, enough to do exactly everything. Exactly right. If you've seen what they've done great job in the past the month, already responsible. it can do nothing but inspire hope and the desire to give them more power. Because if they only had more power, they'd even do more great things than they've done now. You know? I mean, everything they've done is perfect. To Matt's point, um, one of the things about this in the Orban types and um, this jackass uh, at Harvard who's writing this piece of The Atlantic is that this is something we didn't realize in the years after the Cold War. It took us a little bit. It, I mean, Pat Buchanan's back there um, showing us that there's a different type of conservatism uh, because all the major think tanks, the Heritage Foundations, the people that are setting the kind of debate about this stuff are, you know, free market types, right? Nobody, it turned out in the end, nobody was really like that, right? And Donald Trump comes along and they abandon this stuff very, very quickly. And it's very easy to see that during the Cold War. It was, it was obvious during the Cold War, but nobody really wanted to, to talk about it because they pretended that, let's say, this is the common language we'll use because the communist East is, you know, about collectivization of your grain and shoot you in the nape of the neck if you disagree. So let's be on the other side of that. But a lot of it was was religious. That um, so, for instance, I mean, think of the John Birch Society. Who is John Birch? John Birch was a Baptist missionary slash intelligence agent who was in China and was killed not too long after the war ended by agents of the Chinese Communist Party. So the most fanatical, you know, the the byword for for anti communist fanaticism was a religious organization and really, you know, had probably, when it came to economic issues, probably a more, shall we say, socialistic view of the world. This is true so, in so many people, right? So we used to make this distinction all the time. I would say to people, you know, the European far right isn't that far right by the standards of the American right. The difference is, is how much do they want to grow or expand the welfare state? It was usually by a matter, like a factor of eight rather than a factor of 10, and that is true of, of, you know, Front National or the National Rally now in France. And the other thing was that, like, we want the welfare state to exist for um, white people. <laughs> That's the other version of it. It's like, we don't want the immigrants getting any of this stuff. Come on, let's be honest about this. So when you see this percolation that Donald Trump has mistakenly unleashed, he's too dumb to realize that he's tapping into an old tradition that of the right, a huge portion of the right, pretending to go along with this idea of free markets as opposed to a command, command and control, centrally controlled economy that you see in the Soviet Union, 
that they weren't necessarily on the other side for that reason. And, you know, Matt said to me earlier, and I don't know if, can I say this? You said it's a very fashy um, piece that you read in the Atlantic. And that, and you know, it's, it's funny because that's fine. I think guys like, you know, Jonah Goldberg, Goldberg wrote a book about this and people may, you know, they're national socialists. They're Nazis. They're socialists. They're socialists. They're socialists. It's like now they're right wing socialists. I mean, that's what they are. I mean, it's not the same thing that they are not the same as, you know, the social democratic party or something. They have a lot of overlap, but that kind of, I see the fashy stuff in Victor Orban. And it's not because, well, there's a more fascist party in Jobbik, which are actual, you know, arrow cross types and Nazis. And, you know, that is, yeah, they're wearing armbands and they're, they're doing the straight up Hitler stuff. But, you know, the, the, the kind of Mussolini type corporatism that you get from fascist economics is one that has a centralized state that takes care of, that's very involved in the family. So, I mean, you'd always have these family things in, in Nazi Germany. These have this thing called the Mutterkreuz. You would get a mother cross. Um, if you had like six kids, you would get another mother cross for having eight kids, et cetera. There, I mean, in, in Hungary, precisely. Four, I mean, there's like a lot of overlap there. And that language is really hard for Americans who associate the right with people who think that, um, this, that the answer to every problem is to cut taxes. That's not something that exists in Europe. And it's not something that is, is increasingly something that's not existing. Uh, amongst American conservatives, even the ones that championed this stuff and made their names from this stuff, like Art Laffer, who is very much a Trumpian guy in economics now. He wrote books. He wrote, literally wrote, wrote like economics textbooks on this and gave the Laffer curve its name, um, which is now gone. And, you know, all of his uh, uh, economic advisors uh, in the Larry Kudlow vein, they've all just, I mean, I complain about this a lot, but it makes a lot more sense than you think. And there is a tradition amongst conservatives in the U.S. and abroad that is much more traditionalist and much more interested in the kind of religious aspect of anti-communism than we're on the other side economically. I will. I want to point out just at the end of this that uh, there was a great piece by Nicholas Grossman on Archie. I don't know, what that is. Yeah, I don't know how to no, pronounce, I know it. I just don't how pronounce it. That's the the thing that they scoop up the best stuff on Medium. Um, but he was uh, going after and reviewing In uh, Rich Lauer's right? late, latest book, which is about yeah. a sort of a defense of nationalism. And he makes the point, and I think it's a right point, which is that um, a lot of writers and Lowry in particular, and I'm friendly with Rich, um, they look at Trump or they look at whoever their own nationalist is in their own country, and they try to dress up the nationalism of the leader um, in the fanciest intellectual clothes while uh, kind of denying or minimizing the aspects of it that are ugly or they might not uh, agree with. Um, and that doing so and then defending that in periods such as this is actually mm-hmm. not an intellectual exactly. exercise. It's an exercise in power. That, yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, my tribe, which is Republicans or conservatives or people who want to vote in or think in a certain matter. Um, this is a way to get them um, make them feel uh, comfortable 
about what they're doing. Sorry. Um, and, um, and it's not actually very intellectually reputable uh, as, as an exercise. And, and there is something to that right now. Um, I look at the, uh, the, the people who are out there rushing into the gap of Trumpism and of the sort of explosion of whatever happened in 2015 and 16. And I think they they have a point, which is that it was a similar point, and and it was uh, quoted in one of these pieces that there's like a pre nineteen sixty eight and a post nineteen sixty eight. I kind of agree with that. Uh, I I think, and uh, Moynihan and I, uh, at the very least, will explore. There should have been more of a pre nineteen eighty nine and a post nineteen eighty nine as well, um, but. 2016, like it changes stuff. Like the world that we knew, it doesn't exist in the same way. Great, true. All of that said, um, there are people who are rushing into that breach who are literally saying, like, you know, your ideas about free speech and like constitutionalism and like property rights. You know, you had enough. Like, we gotta we, the the adults gotta come in and we gotta do it in the sense of of a community standards, which I'm going to define. And I never thought, I literally never thought that I would be to this point. I'm 51 years old. I'm a good deal older than Camille. Like I never thought that I would be defending among serious intellectual. This is not like some rando. This is like one of Harvard's most distinguished law professors. This guy wrote, co-wrote a book with Richard Posner, which is kind of interesting. Um, in 2011, 10 years ago or so, um, talking about the need for executive power that at that moment, like was a bipartisan thing. Like, you know, maybe the executive needs to be unshackled, um, more unshackled. There are going to be, and I didn't really realize this even as much as my reading in history told me that this would be so, but that in moments of stress, there are people who would volunteer for the job of creating intellectual frameworks for authoritarianism. That is what this Atlantic essay but, yeah. is absolutely. Please Before read we close it, this out, let me, let me just say it, one quick thing it. is that I think it's become a bit of a cliche, but I increasingly realize that it's true is that once we lost the unifying factor of the Cold War and, you know, about 10 years of, of you know, allowing that coalition to still exist because people are kind of confused and intellectually homeless and then 9-11 happens which is a slightly different disruption and now we're kind of getting back to where i suspected you know when you think about it where we would be because i mean there's if you look at the original cast of characters in national review there is guys like john dos passos the great novelist uh whitaker chambers uh the person who exposed Aldrich hiss and brilliant writer too by the way um time magazine man max eastman who used to be an editor at at the masses um, which was the literary journal of the Communist Party in America and the Daily Worker. All of these guys, James Burnham was a very, very famous uh, original National Review guy who was a famous Trotskyite. All of these guys came from the Trot tradition, Arthur Kessler, uh, George Orwell. Not all of these people decided to abandon the working class as they saw it, right? So how were they making common cause with actual conservatives over at the National Review is that there was the unifying factor and the glue of all this. And they would have these fights, you know, in these internecine battles. But the glue that held that together was 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 the sinister mustache twisting people in the Kremlin. Once that disappeared and we're saying, oh, well, the end of history, 
And we'll have some little schismatic fights after that about you know exactly how we do this. Um, and then that really disappeared. And then Russia, we'd forgotten about as that old enemy. And that Cold War kind of hangover is just totally gone. People who used to loathe. I mean, I mean, look at uh, your man in Orange County there, uh, Dana Rohrbacher, who is, you know, would, would want to bomb the Soviets back into the Stone Age and now is, you know, desperate to get another uh, uh, seat at the table in the Kremlin, is that it was so disruptive, the end of the Cold War. We only realized how much that held this fragile coalition together for so long. And it did. It really did. I mean, Pat Buchanan was sitting at the same table as Bill Buckley, et cetera. And there was some like far right stuff in there that kind of got washed out when Bill Buckley attacked uh, Joe Sobron and kind of pushed those people out. And the, 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 um, talked a little bit, uh, before about the John Birchers and did that to the Birchers too. But we're in a totally different period now. This is a period of real clarity where we're seeing this kind of sifting out of all of these, all of all these people. Matt, you mentioned 1989. Let's talk about, um, what we got coming forward on the Patreon. Because we're almost out of time here. Before we go, two two things briefly. Um, the the piece um, I didn't I don't want to leave it said that he never tries to define the good or the common good. At some point in the piece, he mentions, um, as he describes it, this tr- trinity of principles: peace, justice, and abundance, um, as the aspirations for government. Um, and he added to those health and safety. Like these would be the the common good. Um, the the bit of conflation there between sort of negative and positive rights, the the general notion of peace is an obvious definition for that, I suppose. Um, abundance, that's an interesting word. Um, but I don't know that there's a meaning of justice that can actually be divorced from the principle of property rights and self-ownership, except for one that is completely arbitrary, which is to say that it's just defined by whoever the hell is in power. Um, and it certainly has to be said that any notion of like health um, that's guaranteed by the government has uh, a component of it that requires someone to do something else on your behalf. So it, it's a it's a convoluted piece. Maybe maybe it's worth your time. At a minimum, you can see what uh, a muddled dope who works at Harvard <laughs> actually thinks about. I like the, like I this. like not saying so, teaches at Harvard. Saying works at Harvard. Like you know, like he takes out the garbage or something. I, I certainly can't call it <laughs> teaching. <laughs> it's I mean, it's not instruction. <laughs> no, it's just it's just bad. No, but I th- I, th- I think that there's. I agree that it's bad. It's bad in interesting way in that he's spelling it out. He's saying that like. We have to change our view of the Constitution so that we can empower a stronger man to do to the nation what is right for them, even if it's against what they thought of as their rights or even as what they thought of as a good idea. Um, they will be grateful in the end. This is not what I just said is not an unfair rendering no, of not. the piece. That's it's actually not. what he, that's no, what he's writing about. So understand that there is an element um and that overlaps with a lot of people on the right right now who are using the Trump moment to sort of talk about how things should go forward this is the direction that they are heading and the implied overlap with the di- different different desires is precisely and, and, this. and he calls different accents, but isn't this kind of the John Yu thing i mean it's a pretty, it sounds exactly what John like how how you would describe John Yu in 2002 I think that I think that John Yu has a uh, less 
uh, he's less focused. And John Yu is a, a, a Federalist Society legal thinker who enabled um, the Bush-Cheney administration to expand their idea about the unitary executive um, and that can do whatever it wants in the waging yes. of war. He provided the legal um, rationale. I think that. Uh, and, you know, exaggerated or boldlerized, whatever, but that's basically it. I think these guys actually have a, um, a policy and theological, in some senses, goal at the end. They want to reshape things. I mean, there's go and, and look at, at, uh, at, uh, Vermeule's, uh, writing in the last three years. It's about like how we can go inside the institutions and change it so that we can, um, foster illiberalism in the structures of liberal democracy. I mean, he's open about it. that's what he wants to do. And I, I appreciate the gesture on his part because he's spelling it out in a way that's not just like some stupid ass Claremont essay, which are, which is easy to like make fun of. It's actually well thought of. He's one of the most well thought of Harvard law professors out there. Like anytime that you see him mentioned five years ago, it's always like super distinguished and triple distinguished and all this kind of stuff. So like he's built up to this point. So think about it again, when people say, when they, when they wake up in the morning and say, I am going to tell you why liberalism is bad. It's fine as someone who describes themselves as liberal. And again, not in the modern progressive sense, although they can overlap, but like when they tell you I'm going against liberalism, it's a time to take them yeah. a little bit seriously. So well, take it seriously. Then the second thing, and this may be, a, this is a question for the two of you. Um, and this may be something I ask and then you think about, and we return to this uh, later on. Um, but I was having a conversation with someone um, who I won't name, who used the phrase uh, like the American fetish for liberty, um, as if to say that that fetish is an obstacle to all manner of good things that need to be accomplished or ne necessary actions that should be taken to protect us. Um, but for our hang up with that sort of notion of being able to do what you will um, and not what you should and not what you're told. Um, but in the context of that, I was thinking about various instances in history where something like what's happened in Hungary has taken place, where a country goes, undergoes like, a dramatic radical transformation, like in the course of a few years, where it has these vaunted sort of limited government, or at least democratic, to use that horrible word in this context, um, those democratic Western principles, and drifts away from that. And I'm I'm wondering, in your minds, what the like starkest examples of this are like in the last like 40 or 50 years. Um, this, this week I had to go back and actually do some reading um, about Hungary and the historical circumstances there because my contemporary contemporaneous memory of like 1989 when they were removing the, the fence that was between them and Austria 
um, which presages the the Berlin Wall coming down later in 1989, which is remarkable. Totally crucial um, to it. But mm, I mean, totally at the time, crucial. I was probably watching Punky Slam Brewster reruns or something fantastic. like that. So I don't really, I, I had to read about it now. Um, but I mean, that's a pretty remarkable change for Orban to go from being at the forefront of that to now being routinely described as an authoritarian, an authoritarian, um, and seen the footage of him interacting with EU counterparts and someone jokingly calling him the dictator. Um, it's harder to joke about that now at this point. He's not. Listen, um, I, I want Michael to answer the actual meat of the question, which is like, uh, uh, come up with some other example of the last 40 to 50 years. I lived in Hungary for three years and have some insight. And Orban was in the process of transferring himself from like semi bohemianish dissident to someone who would pretend for power. It is inaccurate at least until last week to call him a dictator or an authoritarian. And, and one of the problems is, and one of the reasons why a lot of, of Buchananites flock to types like Orban um, or Scott McConnell, who's someone who I respect more than Pat Buchanan, um, is that the Western elites, the EU elites always overreact against him. They mm -hmm. always do because they're horrified by him. They're horrified by someone who says that I want to um, control my country's borders instead of EU and therefore Angela Merkel to control the borders. Which is kind of a pretty, regardless of what you think he wants to do with the borders, like you can kind of wrap your brains around it. I saw this a lot when I lived in Slovakia, which is next door to, to Hungary and has always had a fraught relationship with it. And the way that the universe treated Vladimir Metsiar, who's the always the, uh, he was the Viktor Orban, basically, of Slovakia, less successful. Um, and they would treat him as a dictator, an authoritarian, a communist. And all of this was not true um, because... Um, it was easier just to hold on to some like hate label than actually get into what was happening with the, with the individual human being. Um, so, uh, and, and then that reinforces the cycle. This is the way that it gets Trumpy, right? Like Donald Trump is inherently criticizable. And when you see him criticize like on the white house lawn on a daily basis, now that he does his goddamn, you know, coronavirus um, uh, briefing, and the Jim Acosta's the world, the way that they ask questions to him, like you find yourself whipsawing, depending on where you are with him and with the the story of the day between like, yeah, of course, he's an obvious jackass. And God, I hate that person, too. Um, and so it's 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 easy to kind of get back and forth between all of that. Hungary is not a dictatorship. It is an illiberal democracy. That's what it is. Um, by design at this point by Viktor Orban, it is not Belarus, you know, like it's not, a, it's, it's, he's not Lukashenko. You have to be able to create differences in your brain with this. Um, and actually it's important because we are going to see Orban's and we are seeing Orban's in our midst right now. So let's create a vocabulary to understand where these people are coming from. They actually are not like, you don't press a big red button saying, you know, it's like the, the internet meme, like, do I press this red button or that red button? Like I am an authoritarian communist. I have a, you're a fascist. It's not that it's actually kind of, uh, it is, like 
read the Adrian uh, Vermeule piece, like that is the long, slow glide to where Victor Orban has come right now. And that to me is more terrifying because it's not just like somebody uh, creating mob rule or, you know, dictatorial rule right now. It's actually just a slide into gradual authoritarianism, which is worse. But I want to hear Moynihan's answer to the actual question. you said contradictory things there and someone is listening and I, and I, wanna, I don't doubt it. I want to push you briefly. You said that it was unfair to use some of those labels until this week. Um, even now it's probably unfair, but like, I don't know because sure. it's just this week. Right. So like, so he's been described as an uh, authoritarian for a long time. But this week, Camille, he has said that parliament no longer has certain rights to pass legislation. He can he can uh, uh, authorize mm-hmm. government policies by yeah. decree, um, including in those decrees. He can lock somebody up for five years, maybe eight years for spreading fake news like it's a and like he postponed right. elections. Right. So this all happened in the last, I don't know, 72 hours or so. So like, it's difficult yeah. to say exactly what it is. Right. So, but to call him 10 years ago or eight mm-hmm. years ago or 15 years ago, all of which was, which is pretty co- common at the time, he is an authoritarian. Like he has authoritarian instincts. He mm-hmm. always has. And part of them calling him that was important in terms of, of, of uh of sending out the warning flare however um like it, use your language it's not sub- yeah advising. although it's hard to call That's it an overreaction well now, i mean it's he did enough happening. before to not be surprised by this if you just go and look at all the the media laws that were passed yeah. by um orban mm-hmm. and fidesz it's they're not things that we would accept in this country but i would say that to to your question a brief response to it is if you look at 1989 to, to today the one thing that looking at a country like Hungary and Hungary in particular that you cannot forget about is the concept to, to, you know, Rich Lowry's book of nationalism and of being Hungarian, which is an important thing to mm-hmm. Hungarians. Um, if you remember in 1956 when the Soviets, uh, um, shall we say intervened <laughs> in, uh, in Hungary, um, you see people on the streets with the Hungarian flag with a huge hole in the center of it. And that's because the communists plopped a hammer and sickle slash other things in the middle of it to to co-opt the Hungarian flag is not a national flag, but is a flag of a political movement. They cut that out. They did the same thing in 1989. Um, you know, and, and you know, look, Jobbik, the far right party, is not a super popular party. They they have sort of low poll numbers these days, but they're if you had something like that in America, the we would. I mean, the media would stop and be like, "We've we're just we're done. We're controlled by Nazis and fascists and everything." So they've been popular in mm-hmm. in in certain ways. Um, so I think that's the important thing in, in in a lot of senses of why Hungary changed so quickly and why they can change so quickly. I mean, the, the concept of Matt said is of Viktor Orban saying we want to be able to control our borders is that we are Hungary, we're not European, and that's a very important thing to Hungarians. Um, but to the point of like where I think your question before was where have we seen this? In the past forty years, mm-hmm. I mean, I think in yeah examples that stand out to you most. Uh, in, in, in in what sense are you saying that that Hungary like that have become illiberal? Like the yeah the the 
Yes, the change from being a, a, a liberal democracy in a very meaningful sense to something decidedly different from that. The the clearest examples of it, and and I, I think about it because when I hear someone say something like you know that we have a a fetish for liberty mm-hmm. here, um, it it makes me think about all of the. I, I respond to all of the small encroachments because I worry about the possibility of, quote, it happening mm-hmm. here, unquote. Um, and to the extent it has happened in other places it, in our lifetimes and in recent decades in ways that are dramatic and illustrative of just how sudden the change mm-hmm. can be, um, I think it's it's worth highlighting. It makes me think about what's happening in Hong Kong, but that's a very unique sort of situation with the handover that took place. Um, yeah, it all depends China. on how you and, and um, what the what the so, criteria are. I mean, if if you take away foreign intervention or foreign occupation and say what countries have done mm-hmm. this by sort of legislative fiat or or by an election um or just by a subtle but kind of obvious like South Korea for instance you know the re government was was not a liberal government, and South Korea was was a an illiberal place in the nineteen seventies. Um, it was kind of a slide towards that, but but you know countries that do that. I mean, I think that America's liberty fetish, uh, to quote your friends, um, I, I it would it would have served so many countries that I can think of um, if they had had a liberty fetish, and if they had treated that yeah. as as an important part of of you know, reforming a country after after a conflict or after an occupation. Um, Poland is a good example of it. Poland, uh, very similar to Hungary in the sense that, you know, Lech Walesa, the Nobel Prize winner, the, the former head of Solidarity in Gdansk, became, became not the former, so he is the Nobel Prize winner, but he became uh, president right after. And, you know, immediately was not particularly popular and kind of flamed out reputationally. And um, that is a country that has gone to the Law and Justice Party, which is very much Poland, Poland, Poland. It very, very much like Hungary in that sense. Eastern European countries kind of of a piece in this way. I mean, the Matt can, could, could speak to this more, but like, you know, the Czech Republic is, is become, we have, you know, what's his name? Andres, whatever, who's the, the guy now who's become, um, you know, very, very Orban-like in in uh, the Czech Republic. But I think that that's, that's a, a common thing in certain countries that don't have long democratic traditions or have very shaky democratic traditions. I mean, you're not going to see such a thing in England. You're just going to see people saying that Margaret Thatcher is a fascist, you know, um, uh, Tony Blair is a Nazi or whatever it might be. Overblown, overcooked ways of looking at sort of very boring political movements in a lot of ways. But it is when you see Eastern European countries, which are countries that have been brutalized, right? And Turkey is a great example of that too. Turkey was never a hugely liberal country. The Ataturk, you know, movement in the post-Ottoman the twenties, it's like, you know, it's a picture of Ataturk everywhere. It was aggressively mm-hmm. secular. And what do we have now? The opposite of aggressively secular and, and you know, Islamism sliding into the other thing I like to point out often is that the liberationist movements of the Middle East in the 1960s were almost all Marxist Leninist. You know, the biggest one in the world was the PFLP. That was the most famous one, George Habash and people like that's funded by the Soviets training the red brigades and the terrorists in the, in, in Western Europe would come to train with the PFLP 
as you know, Arafat, that was a, the PLO was basically a socialist movement. South Yemen was a, was a Soviet proxy state. That is the biggest turn I've seen, probably. That's an enormous, mm-hmm. all of those groups, all, almost every single one of them was socialist in nature. And I think a lot of that was be- to become part of the non-aligned movement, quote unquote, which meant you were aligned with the Soviet Union. But all of those, all of those movements, mm-hmm. and particularly the ones in Africa too, um, that, you know, were nominally Marxist or aggressively so in some cases, Nkrumah and, you know, and even in Zimbabwe and, and Mugabe was, Savior, people loved the Western left, loved him. Uh, you know, I mean, Saddam Hussein became in the 1990s somebody who built a Saddam Hussein mosque in in Baghdad and made a Quran that was made in his blood or with drips of his blood, like like the Kiss comic book. But what was it before? Baathism was socialism. It was a socialist secular movement in Iraq that came to power in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. The same thing was true. Of, of, um, of Syria, which is essentially a Baathist movement too. I mean, you know, in 1979, the, the, the big, the big party that we would see was going to have so much influence in Iran was the Tuda party, which was the communist party. And then they joined forces with the Islamists and then were destroyed by them. And then no more Tuda, no more communist party. So you see a lot of those shifts from, you know, kind of open kind of liberalism going towards extreme illiberalism. But none of those places like the United States had a tradition that one could hearken back to, could say, mm, well, the Constitution, none of that really existed. You do hearken back to the idea of the nation state, the idea of Poland, the idea of mm-hmm. Hungary, the idea of the Ummah in the Arab world. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a. What about the. The other thing that I would add. What about the Le Pens, uh, the Le Pens quickly. and France and the. the- the surging sort of populist nationalist movements in various other parts of Europe that are having surprising levels of success. Is that not well, don't, don't related make them mis- to these trends? It is, but and- don't make the mistake about the Le Pens. Sure. The Le Pens are the people that beat everybody to the punch. They were popular in the 90s. They were having runoff elections in the 90s prior mm-hmm. to 9-11. Prior to that stuff is because you had terrorism and you had things from Algeria and people that thought that, you know, giving Algeria back to the Algerians um, was a mistake and that we should, you know, keep that as a colonial mm-hmm. possession. And that was, uh, that was very much tied to that. And I think that was, that was, you know, Le Pen used to talk about these things too. Um, mm-hmm. The thing is, is that, you know, <laughs> it's in some ways, be careful what you wish for when you say there's two, the, the two parties in America are boring and the same thing. We need a multi-party system like that in Europe. The multi-party system in Europe, of course, empowers fascist parties often. And then they have to use the vagaries and peculiarities of the, of the elections and runoffs in France to smite Front National. Like how many times now? 50, like it's like, it's, they, it's, they're almost on the precipice of power and then everyone gets together in that runoff election and prevents them from, from getting power. In these other countries where you have to have these, these coalition governments with really, really unsavory, uh, characters. So, I mean, they've been there for a long time. They've been, I mean, Spain, I mean, was from 1939 after the Spanish Civil War until Franco's death in 1975 was, you know, a quote unquote fascist country right next door. People forget about Salazar, who was a fascist and quote unquote fascist. He was, you know, Catholic fascist. Uh, you know, the, the, liberalism is not the natural state of Europe in the 20th century. Everyone's like, we should be more like Europe. It's like, well, you should look at Europe from, you know, 1914 is that we have monarchs starting wars, right? I mean, this is the Archduke and the Kaiser 
right? These are monarchs. And, and you know, when, when, when the, the Romanovs are killed in Russia, that's when everything changes. It's all, I mean, this is not democratic systems. And then they're replaced by fascism. And then they're replaced by communist occupation. This is in Europe in the 20th century. The story mm-hmm. of Europe in the 20th century is one of illiberalism. Yes. And, but as part of that, it, uh, that, worries me and and of course i'm kind of leading with self interest or self like uh experience on this is that central europe is the bellwether or has been reliably you could also say the balkans are in their own way too um depending on on your on your area of focus but where they go stuff goes like um you know in 1933 central europe was not a particularly uh, hospitable place for liberalism. Basically, Czechoslovakia, which is a new country at the time, was there. And the other very new post-World War I newly created states had gone pretty quickly from liberal democracy towards like, my God, can we get a fascist here? Can we get a clerico-fascist here to like get things going? Let's do that. So um, when I look at uh, Hungary, especially right now, and this is an answer to your question, Camille, is um, it's more about Hungary more than like, oh, Hungary is going to go into the the path that I worry about that we have observed in other countries. I wanted and expected as someone who lived there for three years and covered Orban at the time um, and saw how he made the conscious uh, decision to go um, uh to repudiate cosmopolitanism and embrace nationalism as like his electoral thing. And it worked. Hey, come on, it worked for the guy. Um, but like repudiated friends that he had had for a long time uh, based on that as well. Um, but I also just assumed that this country, which is a grand, wonderful country. Budapest is one of the great capitals on this planet. It's an amazing city. It's great. Um, Hungary is a, is a great and wonderful country. Um, there is an assumption, and it was perhaps naive, uh, that particularly what we used to call the Visegrad Four countries, which was Czech, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and Poland, would kind of be okay. Like after the uh, yoke of Soviet imperialism, they would find their own way, and they would go in fits and starts. And it would work out if they don't work out, if even any of them don't work out um, on some level for me. But also it's like a, it's a, you know, the weather vane, canary in the coal mine, whatever. It's your stupid metaphor of the day. Like if we can't keep those countries from being shitty and here's the complication of that is and again it goes back to the kind of buchananite uh, fetish and other people uh, uh sympathy for victor Orban's of the world is that um those guys and even other guys like uh, Václav klaus who's the president of the czech republic forever um you know they were against what a lot of you know, right-thinking Americans were against for a long time. Like, I hate the EU. I hate the curvature on bananas rules. I hate this. I hate that. Um, I want there to be national sovereignty about things. Um, there's a great piece by, and I'm going to uh, mangle the name because uh, that's just the way things go in life. But I believe it's uh, Nicholas Grossman, and I apologize to him if I've screwed it up. But he wrote a piece for Arc Digi about uh, Rich Lowry's latest book, and and in it. 
um, he makes the point of like, you got to choose your nationalist and you can't like, uh, you can't divorce uh, what the nationalist does. And there's a lot of embrace of these people from what you imagine from afar that the person is doing. You're ennobling um, the ways that his own uh, 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 actions might overlap with your own. But in the process, he's doing a lot of terrible things, like like legitimately terrible things from the beginning. And a lot of people look the other way in a similar way that they're looking the other way in this particular case with the way that Trump behaves himself, too. Uh, and it's bad. And it's also bad that on the flip side, the kind of rising progressive nationalism, the Bernie Sanders nationalism peers upon all of this activity and says, you know what we need? More power, <laughs> more government power to do stuff. There isn't uh, a structural analysis of this that's leading to a good place. So that's why um, I'm depressed and swigging Bekarovka. Well, we are currently at the length of a Bergman movie. Yeah, for we this, gotta, we uh, gotta go. <laughs> so we should go. We gotta get out of here. I'm, I'm glad and for that. Indul I'm glad I indulged though and asked the question. Yeah. That was fascinating. So more on well, that. I would just but... say, say this on the way out, just some housekeeping things. On the Patreon, we will be, um, doing a few things. Um, there are suggestions of listeners. Uh, Matt and I are going to be, uh, doing, uh, a fun little thing in which we pick a year and do a podcast on that year that will be music focused, uh, film focused, um, and news and history focused. Um, I will typically not give away the stuff um, uh, in the future, but uh, the first episode will be on 1989. That's where we're starting. And it won't be just the boring stuff that you think in 1989. Well, we know the Berlin Wall fell and Tiananmen happened. Other stuff too. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing um, is somebody suggested and on the Patreon that we're going, that we should do in this, in this era of zoom that we should have a zoom uh, Patreon where um, we can have some of you people join us um, in a unbelievably yeah. ill-advised decision. We're going to do something like that. Yes. So um, yeah, this has been pretty successful. I think it's largely operated without a hitch, despite my miserable yes. bonded DSL connection. Yeah. Cause we're on the zoom now, but we're just, yeah. you're not going to see it. We're just testing the yeah. shit out, but, but you will um, see it. If you join the zoom hangout that we'll do, maybe we should do it yes. this week. We should we'll do, do it. it. Like, we can do it this week. We can do it this week. Yeah. So we'll do the Zoom thing, and um, you know, we'll we'll prize you people who are, uh, put you at the front of the line if you uh, if you don't fly coach, if you know what I mean. So, <laughs> but all are welcome and all are open to it. So we'll we'll do something cool with that. So those are two things to look forward to. And um, if you're not a Patreon subscriber and want to involve yourself in that, uh, subscribe and drop me a note when you do. And I'll maybe, maybe I'll try to put you at the front of the line for that, for being a yeah. nice new subscriber. Um, so thanks for, for listening to me uh, sell it. Yeah. We good? All right. Bye. All right. Later. Bye. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. <laughs>